Greetings from the North, citizens of the globe. Welcome. The show you are about to hear is another revived oldie extracted from a damaged disc. Although this conversation occurred in 19, it is still relevant, as nothing has changed considering the subject matter. If anything, things have just become worse. Yep, this means we're dealing with socio-political affairs and another episode of power criticism, this time focusing on aspects of the US deep state as a tool for the global oligarchs and their multinational corporations. As this was recorded right before the pandemic, the absence of this perspective is probably the most anachronistic element, but perhaps you will just find that refreshing, leaving room for other important points, and here's some of them. We established what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, and almost everybody agrees that is the heart and soul of the deep state. Mm. It was this culture that allowed a permanent state of war to exist. But after World War II, the culture changed. We had created such a behemoth of money and steel and power and technology that it really was a war looking for a place to fight. Mm-hmm. And, and it became the business of war. Virtually all of our laws, all of our taxes, all the fees and fines and enforcement actions that are taken by our government are written by more than 650 agencies, departments, bureaus, and administrations, but we have no representation in that government. Mm. That in and of itself is tyranny Mm. because we have no redress. There's nothing we can do. Now, to make matters worse, and you very correctly picked up on this, The political class, the protected class, can violate virtually any rule they want. They can murder, they can steal, they can commit perjury, they can do anything they want, and nothing happens to them. Mm. Truman was also a a wonderful uh, fascist. He loved corporate government. He loved to have corporate heads working inside of government, and the other way around. Was it under Truman that NSA and CIA got established? Sort of. The NSA wasn't established yet, but the CIA was. Here's the story. They created what was what was then called a professional government, a corporate government, an unelected government of bureaucrats, because Truman wanted things to happen quick. He didn't want to deal with elected officials and elections and all that garbage. Mm. That's why he dropped the two bombs immediately, because he wanted to establish himself as an, an irreconcilable force in the world. This group of high-ranking professionals whose salaries would be linked to that of the vice president and they can they don't answer to the president Hmm. in fact we really don't even know who they answer to but these ses officers have complete veto power over all the agencies there are still 685 of these in our government to this day i knew i knew cia was independent but uh, this is uh, complete news to me Mm -hmm. it's still uh, like this then Yes, it is still like this today. Now, President Trump, early in his presidency, took an executive order from back in the 80s. This was left over from Carter. 
And he can't get rid of the SES because somehow those laws just can't be changed without a two-thirds vote of Congress or something. It's, it's really untouchable. Wow. So what he did is he changed their salary. <laughs> he changed their salary to $1 a year. No. So if they want Jeez. to stay in power, they have to resign themselves to make their money another way. Yeah, well, but I guess they're getting money from elsewhere anyway, right? Oh, I shouldn't have asked. But would you say there's any agency in the bureaucracy that isn't corrupted? Well, maybe there is one agency that names federal monuments. <laughs> there's a possibility that one is not corrupt. <laughs> Great. Such an important work. So. <laughs> well, it's got 825 members of that agency. Each one of them makes in excess of $100,000 a year. Jeez. And all they do is name monuments around the country. I think he also had a rule that said for every new regulation, two has to be deleted, something like that. Yeah, but it turned out to be like seven or eight for every new regulation. They were getting rid of like seven or eight. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you mentioned the, the neocons and the establishment. And I, I'm saying that what we have going on right now is a global war. It is a war to try to take over the entire world. And there's only one thing in their way. The Nazis which still have a kind of quasi-SS on their arms, on their mm. uniforms, they are using Al-Qaeda, and they have heavy weapons like 50 caliber and 20 millimeter cannons, and it's pretty, it's pretty devastating, the weaponry that they have their hands on. And they're fighting both. They're fighting the Russian oligarchs, and they're fighting the local communists. But the, but the original government there that was more Russia-friendly, and that was basically through a coup, they were toppled by CIA and a coup. Sure. They were neither of those three factions, right? Uh, well, yes and no. They were leftovers from World War II, but they were privately held. And uh, they, were, they were kind of trying to use it to control the country. A lot of people don't know this, but Ukraine has been part of Russia since 1760, a long, long time. Mm. But the oligarchs became multi-billionaires off of war, and they're very smart, and they're very tough. Ukraine kind of suffers because all this wealth is controlled by very few people. Maybe a dozen of these guys control all this wealth. And that's the only reason the world knows about the Bill Clinton, Loretta Lynch meeting what we don't know is the extent of that deal, right. but we think it was an offer to her that if she would let the prosecution of Hillary Clinton go, disappear, mm. she would be appointed as the next Supreme Court justice. Right, right. And by the way, a few days before this meeting, Antonin Scalia was killed. A few days after this meeting, Seth Rich was murdered. And there's more, too, because one of Julian Assange's other officers was on a train in Europe, and he was tracked, and he alerted the Assange organization that he had been made, and he never got off that train. Wow. They found, they found his bag floating in, in the river. He probably had something new that they got. Yeah. But, but I think it's an interlope to muddy the waters. Uh, possible. But I've done statistics my whole life. Mm. I have a master's degree in it. I've run the statistics on the Q drops and the, the uh, Trump posts, and there's way too much coordination. I mean, within seconds of another. Right. Have you heard about uh, Steve uh, Pishinek or whatever his name is? He's been talking about this war behind the scenes. It's big. It's big yeah. because there's so much at stake. But I will tell you, it's a small, tight group of ultra hackers, maybe inside the NSA. But 
they are predicting stuff that's not coming to fruition. Not necessarily. What they're doing is they're they're manipulating the public. Now, our recurring guest that you heard there is best-selling author Dr. Brooks Agnew. He's one of those with an abnormal CV, but last time he visited the forum, we gave him an extensive presentation, so we'll settle for an abridged today. Brooks descended from the Agnew and Ross clans of ancient Scotland. As the son of a NASA engineer, he spent his youth hanging around Caltech and JPL. At age 16, he was assisting with lab research at UCLA's Brain Research Institute. He entered the Air Force in 73 and graduated in 74 in electrical engineering at the Community College of the Air Force Associates, and then began his college studies at the University of North Dakota. In 75, he moved on to Brigham Young University, then to Western Kentucky University, and finally to Tennessee Technological University, where he in 94 received bachelor's in chemistry and mathematics. In 98, he got master's degree in quality management and statistics from Kennedy Western University. In 2000, he completed his doctorate in physics through Tennessee Technological University. Brooks Agnew has worked as instructor at Gaston College, Tennessee Technological University and Western Kentucky University. He is a multilingual fellow at New Earth University. Dr. Agnor is a certified quality engineer with many successful inventions, even utilized in the Mars Express program, many of which are concerned with various innovative energy and propulsion systems. Indeed, he holds numerous patents, trade secrets and proprietary knowledge in multiple industries and has authored thousands of technical and scientific papers, booklets and documentaries. His professional career as a commercial scientist with numerous Fortune 100 companies includes more than five years in oil and gas exploration and 25 years in the manufacturing industry. In 2009, he eventually retired as an engineer for the automotive industry after founding his own EV company in North Carolina, where he currently is CEO. He's a member of many societies, like Mensa, has cooperated with Pure Energy Systems, New Energy Congress, and the Global Breakthrough Energy Movement, and has been a public speaker at numerous conferences and scientific documentaries. In media, he's been featured in many, many programs, such as Holes in Heaven, Missing Secrets of Nikola Tesla, Joe Rogan Questions Everything, Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, to name some and appeared at History Channel, Discovery Channel, Science Channel, True TV, National Geographic, and many others, as well as hundreds of radio programs and podcasts. Indeed, he hosts his own radio show called X Squared Radio. More than anything, he's a Renaissance man with a passion for discovery. One of the most interesting projects he's involved with is the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, which we discussed during his last visit. Now, today's show is based upon his book Alienated Nation from Eleven, which was right in the peak of the Liberty Wave, which seems to be a century ago now and contains many values similar to those. However, in 18, he published another book called Charm of Favor, a true story of the rise of the Clinton crime syndicate, which was still new during our talk, and so it also marked on the discussions. 
Almost one that some may be put off from the heavy criticism of establishment the Democrats in general and the Clinton dynasty in particular, but try to distinguish between on the one hand objective facts, which is childish to be upset about learning lest you don't care about truth and need to shield yourself in a fantasy bubble, and on the other, personal opinions and sentiments, which our guest is not shy of expressing, and here it's fair to disagree. Indeed, I don't agree with him about everything either. But that's completely natural and downright healthy. So don't be put off from this either, as this show is not about preaching a political view, even if the guest expresses them. Or to put it like this, the mailman's views has no bearing upon the gravity of the content of the letter, which in this metaphor is the facts he is conveying regarding this examination of the corrupt US political system. Welcome back to Forum Borealis Brooks. Good to be here. Sorry, I was swallowing, so I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, the audience are, g- are going to have to swallow a lot today uh, because <laughs> I know a little about what we're going to go through, and it's incredible stuff. It's one of our we, – we've just started doing politics, so to speak. I mean, not party politics, obviously, but political issues, <clears throat> analysis of the structure. Yeah. And one of the big issues that America is struggling with today is to get money out of politics. And if you look at polls, it's like 70-80% support to get it out of politics, no matter your identification, conservative, liberal, libertarian, whatever. But still, we have this corporate machine that is uh, blocking it. Because I think that's important, because there are people fighting today to get money out of politics with an amendment. Right. And I think people need to be, you know, aware of there's not much we can do in this world, but that's one of the things we can do. And that's a very good point. That's yeah. a very good point because it really doesn't matter what ideology you're with, whether you're a socialist or whether you're a libertarian or a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal, a conservative. Mm. Nobody, nobody really wants to go to war over this. There has to be. A solution when you have an organization that rises to power and thinks, which this is what makes them dangerous, thinks they control everything. They control the money, they control the voting systems, mm-hmm. they control immigration, they control the movement of of trade throughout the world. They think they control all of that. We we think maybe the only way to win against them is is through violence and I guess that's what history has taught us. But we have a rare opportunity because the founding fathers of this country put a special clause in our Constitution that allows the states to have their own convention. They can have their own convention run by the states. Congress has nothing to do with it. You know what? You know what? We should cover this today. Because this thing is kind of urgent and current. You betcha. But uh, I'm thinking we can just start to go through the, your book because I want to make people understand the horrible situation about bureaucracy and agencies and all that stuff and, and how we can solve it. Okay. So um, you have two interesting books that we're going to kind of cover today in, in terms of what we're going to speak about. 
And one of them is called Alienated Nation. That's the one I have and, and have read, uh, okay. subtitled The New Quest for Liberty. And the very important thing that Brooks will fill us in on from that book is because everybody is aware of the corporate machine. Or, and nowadays they're aware of the deep state. You, you issued this book uh, sl- right before that became a well-known concept. But True. you in this book, you do a very good job of uncovering. You know, it's not just CIA we're talking about here or Pentagon. Gone, but there's agencies upon agencies upon agencies and how they are supporting the powers that be against the people. So that we're going to hear from you about today. Okay. And then you have this other new book that I haven't read that I thought was only about the Clinton crime syndicate, which warrants a book, of course, in itself. But you go far back in history. And I, I think maybe we should, we should begin there, that you walk us up through history from there. Okay. Because you're going back in history, right? And and then you walk us up to, to modern day, and then we can face over to the uh, alienated nation theme. Okay. <clears throat> well, the book Charm of Favor uh, was a number two bestseller within a week of its coming out. Uh, wow. People, people, uh, it's a, it is a novel, but all the events that happen in it are real. Um, and the the idea of the book uh, was actually a prequel to the birth trilogy. I'd written the birth trilogy, and it, it was so well received. People said, "Oh, you need to write a pre, you need to write a, a sequel, write another one." But the third volume of the birth trilogy had set a, such a fantastic ending. I, I I thought and thought, like I just can't do it any better than it was done. So I decided to write a prequel, a book that happens before the birth trilogy. Well, uh, as I as I began doing the research for a prequel to the birth trilogy, um, what I became interested in was the world conditions that precipitated this this grand conflict that we went through in the birth trilogy. And and the further back I went to try to find the the beginning of the fuse that lit this this whole situation that we're in right now with the deep state. The clearer it got, and uh, wow! <laughs> yeah, it's a much bigger story than I thought. I thought you were just looking into the Clinton crime syndicate, but this is huge. Well, the reason it's the, it's the rise of the Clinton crime syndicate is it's it didn't come suddenly on the scene. What happened was it started out, you know, just to talk about the rise of this this criminal gang, like a syndicate. It's not just in this country. It's like global. It has, it has a global, uh, coordination and, and anyone can, everyone can see it. They just don't know where it comes from. Right. So I decided to go back into history and the, the further back I went, the clearer it got, I got back to 1935. I got back to 1812. I got back to 60, 1760. I got back to the year 1215. Wow. And each time I went back, more and more of the pieces fell into place. And so then I just came forward from there. And uh, I went back to, of course, World War II when when we established what uh, Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. I think almost everybody agrees that is – that is the the heart and soul of the deep state. Mm. It was it was this culture that allowed 
a permanent state of war to exist. You know, before that, we had we had battles and we had uh, wars that we fought, and then they ended, and then you know we sold off our ships, as it were, and we went back to peaceful living until it was time to fight again. But after World War II, 1944, 1945, 1946, what happened was the culture changed. We had created such a behemoth of money and steel and power and technology that it it really was a war looking for a place to fight. Mm-hmm. And, and it became the business of war. But long before that, it became the business of politics. It became the business of political dynasties. So I had to drive back even further. I had to go back to the formation of the country. And the way the world was in the 1700s was kind of unique. What became apparent is that for about 5,000 years of recorded history, the world was virtually ruled by one man. I mean, not the same man for 5,000 years. I mean, one guy, one king, one sovereign, one army, Roman or British or, you know, one of them ruled the whole world. Typically what had happened is from millennia to millennia, tyrants would rise and they would dominate their people and they would oppress them and they would take all their money and they would live like royalty while everyone else lived like slaves and farmers and serfs and, and, uh, and servants. Mm-hmm. What, what happened is the people would escape and they would run to the frontier And for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, there was always a frontier. You could run to the mountains. You could run to the deserts. Well, in the mid-1700s, we figured out how to run across the ocean. So people would run across the Atlantic Ocean, and they would sell everything. They would even sell the rest of their lives so their kids could have a future. Whatever it took to get over that ocean and get to land, where they could live like they wanted to live in, in freedom hmm. and to make their own dreams come true. Well, Yeah, so they were escaping over the sea? Yeah, so they escaped over the sea. They came to this country. They got a plot of land and they, or they worked in a factory or they worked in a, a, a forest or a mine or on a railroad or whatever, but they, they made their own way. And what happened was uh virtually the whole world the whole christian world learned to read by reading the bible it was the most widely published book in the world so everybody virtually learned to read reading that book right so everybody knew the future that god had evidently laid out for us that we were going to you know, go from one tyrant to another, and then eventually we were going to march inexorably to Armageddon, and then the world was going to be destroyed. Mm. But in the mid-1700s, some very intelligent men got together and said, you know, we, we know this future. We've been taught this future. Our grandparents taught it to us. Our parents taught it to us. We already know we're supposed to exist until Armageddon and the world is going to be destroyed. So the founders of the country looked at the situation and said, we, we have a rare opportunity here with a new country separated by an ocean. Right. And 
have all the raw materials and we have all the talent here. We can form a, a new nation, all, all our own. We already know the future that's laid out for us in the scriptures. But let's, since we already know that future, let's choose another future. Let's set up a new nation that is governed by basic rights that are given to us by God instead of by a king. In fact, let's not have a king. Let's have an elected government. Mm. So they did their best to put together a form of government. They established it. They fought a war over it. They won, and America was born. But as smart as the founding fathers were, they knew that establishing a strong central government would eventually create a very strong central government. So they needed to have a way to rein in this government if it got too big and too powerful. It started mm. acting more like a monarchy instead of like an elected government. Mm. And the one thing that they that they overlooked was that that the government itself would become self-perpetuating. And that means that the people that were serving in the government would become self-perpetuating. And then it would be, it would turn into a dynasty, just like the old dukes and earls and princes and kings and barons and all that of the old world. So this is the situation that we have right now. We, we have, after all the wars and all the conflicts that we've had, we have a permanent political class and we have a permanent bureaucratic class. Hmm. And ostensibly there's no way to get rid of it because the laws are made by those two classes. They're hmm. made by the elected officials and they're made by the bureaucrats. Hmm. So hmm. what the founding fathers did, of course, they hang on, hang on. Let me add something. Not just okay. are the laws made by them, but in the maintenance of the law, whatever you say in English, you know, to uphold it. Yes. They've now the last 20 years, maybe chosen to, not even make people accountable for breaking what few protections there are. They get away with it. Whereas the little man, the little man is more than ever being scrutinized and uh, persecuted. So, so that's an additional problem. Well, yes, because uh, what we very quickly realized is that virtually all of our laws, all of our taxes, all the fees and fines and enforcement actions that are taken by our government are written by more than 650 agencies, departments, bureaus, and administrations. But we have no representation in that government. Hmm. That in and of itself is tyranny hmm. because we have no redress. There's nothing we can do. Now, to make matters worse, and you very correctly picked up on this, the political class, the protected class, can violate virtually any rule they want. They can murder, they can steal, they can commit perjury, they can do anything they want, and nothing happens to them. Mm. But the unprotected class, their enemies, are heavily scrutinized and stopped at every turn. Mm. It's horrible. And uh, we, we saw this very displayed, evidently, during the last election. Um, I mean, we all remember how Clinton downright cheated Bernie. And then in order to try to bury Trump, they went with this Russiagate thing. So, so exposing 
the crime. That became the story. Not what the crime was, but the messenger. Yep. Hence Julian Assange and all that. And from there spun this whole Russia Gate history that fortunately now is debunked, but has haunted uh, the narrative, the official narrative for so long. But Brooks, let's go to the agencies because okay. I, I think they get off the hook much too easy. People are aware of the political class. People are aware of the multinational corporations. But I think the agencies are getting much too... It, it, it's like people have a very clouded view on, on what's going on there, what, what that's all about. And you have some excellent examples in your book and also from your own life. Sure. So could you fill us in on how that works? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. We go back to the year 1933. In 1930, in 1929, uh, what happened was, in the very beginning part of that year, the middle class in the United States was absolutely roaring. It could do no wrong. It was productive. It was profitable. People were making money. Jobs were... Uh, paying well, and people took that money and invested it back in the stock market. The stock market was was just blowing and going. It sounds very much like the stock market of today. You can almost mm -hmm. do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And what happened was those globalists I was telling you about, they did not like the fact that the middle class was getting ready to step onto their polo court. And so what they decided to do was to lock up the the liquid money supply in this country and they collapsed the banks well when they did of course they crashed the entire world in 1929 mm. so by late 1932 everybody was in poverty i mean you had billionaires and you had people working for 75 cents a day and all the potatoes they could carry home <laughs> the entire world had collapsed so in comes the flamboyant, colorful governor from New York, Mr. Roosevelt. He takes office in 1933, and almost instantly, this brand new government in a box, like you just add water and boom, you have this new government. Agency after agency, department after department started springing up like crazy out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Full sets of rules full sets of operating agreements, officers and, and people that knew how to run these organizations, almost as though they were created years in advance and just sprang into nothing. And then in 1935, just a little over a year and a half later, the president decided to federalize a group of very highly skilled, uh, I'll just call them a spy agency, in, at the time, in the 1920s, we had a terrible, terrible issue with organized crime in this country. Mm. There was prostitution, there was numbers, there was bootlegging, there was all kinds of bribery and murder going on. And, and the prohibition time, right? Yes, yes. And so the government, because they were moving people away from alcohol fuel, moving them toward gasoline fuel, they needed a force, a federal force that could – that could capture and defeat these bad guys. And so they employed a 
group of bad guys as good guys to go after bad guys. They called them the Bureau of Investigation in 1918. Well, by 1935, their record was so good that Roosevelt federalized them by making them the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. So they were local in the beginning. Well, they were kind of like a a military task force that operated inside this country undercover. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing about the FBI is that they did not – they worked directly for the executive branch. And their charter did not assign them to protect – and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. No, no, no. Their charter was to protect the interests of the United States. Mm. But that is a very sketchy target, and it turned out to be the interests of the Democrat Party. That's what the FBI was created to do. And since 1935, the FBI has been the opposition research firm and, sorry to say, the assassin firm for the Democrat Party. But hang on, in the 30s, the Democrat Party was kind of what the Republicans are now, and the Republicans were, you know, it switched in the, when was it? No, that is absolutely not true. They put forth that false lie, only six Democrats changed parties. The rest of them stayed Democrats. What they tried to do was to immediately put forth a misinformation campaign. This is what they were experts at. I Mm -hmm. mean, they were experts at it. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I had to go back a little bit further. I had to go back to the year 1848 to find out why the heck they were so sinister? What the heck was going on? Why did they? Why were they so dedicated at ripping the country apart? Because if you go back to the year 1848, there was no such thing as the Democrats. No. Name of their party was the Anti-Federalists, the Anti-Federalists. Mm. They changed their name in late 1848, and within five years, it didn't even take them two terms, within five years, they had passed a series of... tariffs. Now, we know what tariffs are now because we hear about them in the news. But in those days, the tariffs were levied against 13 southern states. Hmm. What the Democrat Party, there was only 20 states at the time. Hmm. So what the Democrat Party tried to do in 1853 was split the United States apart into seven states and 13 states. They tried to destroy the United States of America In 1853, eight years later, they succeeded. Thirteen states withdrew and became the Confederacy, and the seven northern states stayed the northern states. They stayed the Union. They had Mm. done it. They had destroyed the United States. Mm. President Lincoln tried to pull them back together, but the Democrats opposed him, wouldn't give him the money, wouldn't let him fight. So the Union Army was kicked out of the South without a single soldier being injured, not even one. And the South was existing in peace. And, of course, they were going their own economic way. At the time, they were using slaves, but that was very quickly becoming obsolete. They were growing like mad. They were trading with Europe. They were trading with Asia. 
And the North tried to put a blockade in place to stop it. They tried to choke them to death. But uh, that's where the conflict started. First at sea and then at land. And the North lost every single solitary battle. They lost the battles at sea. They lost the battles on land until one battle. And that was the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. One of the Southern generals, Pickett, made a foolish charge, exposed his flank, and they were pushed back over the river, and a whole bunch of Americans died on both sides. Lincoln saw his opportunity. He very quickly built a memorial, it took him three months, stood all the headstones up, built a stage, and wrote his famous 84-word speech. He gave the speech, he got the investors, and this time they changed their tactics. Instead of trying to bring the South back into the Union, they decided to burn the South down. And so Sherman went state by state, raping, burning, pillaging, poisoning wells, slaughtering livestock, and they went all the way to Atlanta and burnt it to the ground. The South had no choice but to surrender, and they were forced back into the Union. And that's, that's the story of the Civil War. Right, right. But let's tie that to, you know, the, the current topic, which is the okay. current bureaucracy. All right. So this new government that Roosevelt was forming, the people absolutely loved it because it was a lot of free stuff. Hmm. Roosevelt had a best friend in politics, communicated with him often, was seen publicly with him often laughing and planning. He made no qualms about it. And this person's name was Mussolini. Mm. Roosevelt was a fascist. So what he did is he built a fascist government from top to bottom. It took him almost 10 years to do it, but he did it and then he died in office. Mm. And of course, Truman then took his place. But in the first two terms, it was John Nance Garner, Cactus Jack, who was a conservative. Why didn't he support Hitler then and the Axis powers? Uh, well, who's to say he didn't? Because they were selling Ford yeah. uh, parts and aluminum and That's right. copper and iron and everything. In fact, the, the American banks were the ones that financed Hitler, it's true. putting all his factories together. Mm. We covered uh, much of that, actually. But, but still, why didn't he officially come out? Was it because the population wouldn't stand for it? Yes, mm. because it was the same as it is today. They come out in public and say one thing, mm. and then behind closed doors, they do a complete other thing. Right. Actually, the war with Hitler was a little bit different than the war with Japan. Japan actually attacked us in Hawaii, and that really motivated Americans to fight back. You're, you're talking about Pearl Harbor? Yes, Pearl Harbor. Isn't that proven to be a false flag? Absolutely, it was. Absolutely, it was. It was all done to get Americans to support the war because right. – Honestly, after World War I, we were sick of war. We were ready to get out of war. Yeah. We had to be tricked into World War II. <laughs> yeah. And actually, the war with Hitler was not very popular in this country. It wasn't. Mm. It was the war with Japan that was popular. Mm. That's how he gained the popular support. In the meantime, he's building this agency government. One after the other after the other. And by the end of the Truman presidency... 
Truman was also a, a wonderful uh, fascist. He loved corporate government. He loved to have corporate heads working inside of government and the other way around. Was it under Truman that NSA and CIA got established? Sort of. The NSA wasn't established yet, but the CIA was. Here's the story. Um, they created what was what was then called a professional government, a corporate government, an unelected government of bureaucrats, because Truman wanted things to happen quick. He didn't want to deal with elected officials and elections and all that garbage. Mm. That's why he dropped the two bombs immediately, because he wanted to establish himself as an 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 irreconcilable force in the world. Now, in very short amount of time, it wasn't long between Truman and Carter, when President Carter uh, took over from President Ford, it was, uh, <laughs> this was quite a remarkable situation. This agency government was so powerful at this time. We had this permanent war class set up from Korean War and the Vietnam War and the big uh, people that sold steel and sold weapons and sold uniforms and, you know, handled uh, aircraft, they were making a fortune. So Carter codified this government and he called it the SES, the Senior Executive Service. And he signed into law this group of high-ranking professionals whose salaries would be linked to that of the vice president, and they can they don't answer to the president. Hmm. In fact, we really don't even know who they answer to. But these SES officers have complete veto power over all the agencies. There are still 685 of these wow. in our government to this day. A new, a new CIA was independent, but uh, this is a complete news to me. Mm -hmm. It's still uh, like this then. Yes, it is still like this today. Now, President Trump, early in his presidency, took an executive order from back in the 80s when Reagan was president. This was left over from Carter. And he can't get rid of the SES because somehow those laws just can't be changed without a two-thirds vote of Congress or something. It's, it's really untouchable. Wow. So what he did is he changed their salary. Yeah. <laughs> he changed their salary to $1 a year. No. So if they want Jeez. to stay in power, they have to resign themselves to make their money another way. Yeah, well, but I guess they're getting money from elsewhere anyway, right? Oh, question about I mean, obviously, these people are working for, for someone else than the government. But still, that's a brilliant move. Yes, it is. But it's it's really the best he can do is just wait them out. And he's trying his best to get the laws changed so that no more SES officers are appointed. But if they are pushing for war, yes, and it seems they're winning. I mean, the neocons are flooding his administration like rats now. All those people who were a threat to the establishment are basically squeezed out. And despite his initial sound instincts of not going wanting to go to war anywhere. Now it seems they're going to war everywhere. So I think they're losing. Well, I mean, that's like the press, but actually President Trump is not not engaging in new wars at all. In fact, he's trying his best to withdraw from everywhere. But there's something he realizes, and I realized in the book Charm of Favor. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon is an enormously political uh, organization. Mm -hmm. Enormously political. There's 
He is the commander in chief, but what goes on in the Pentagon is extremely political. And if you, you know, Trump, when he announced his presidency, he began ripping the establishment apart right away. He almost, well, I think he effectively did destroy the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, guys like Paul Ryan and uh, Jeff Flake and all these uh, Booker, or not Booker, but uh, Corey, not Cory Booker, but uh, Corker, Bob Corker, and others like him, they bailed. They got out. Um, uh, and, and the president candidate, uh, um, the Mormon guy, what's his name? Uh, he Mitt played him brilliantly. Yeah, Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney, yeah. but he didn't get rid of Mitch McConnell, probably the biggest swamp creature in the whole damn Washington. I'm telling you, <laughs> from I lived nine years in Kentucky, so I'm very familiar with uh, Mitch McConnell. Oh. Then you're familiar with Rand Paul. He should have brought Rand Paul into the administration. I'm more familiar with his father than I am Rand. Rand and I exchanged a few uh, emails when he first uh, ran for office, and after that, he he kind of you know became insulated from it all. But you know, he is not as libertarian as his father, but mm. he also believes that we should be out of all foreign conflicts. Yeah. He also believes we should not be sending money to foreign governments. Yeah. And th that's the way Trump believes, too. And Trump, if he had his druthers... Except for Saudi Arabia and Israel. They are off, obviously off the hook for anything. Well, they're big organizations, and they, ha they both have their own uh, idiosyncrasies. I'll try to explain that just a little okay, bit. Okay, cool. Saudi Arabia, for, for 50 years, has <clears throat> been the heart and soul of OPEC. So OPEC has tried to control the world's... A price on crude oil for a long, long time. And so Trump decided that what he was going to do is increase U.S. production so that we were no longer dependent upon foreign oil. I'm surprised he got it done as quickly as he did, because under the previous administration, we were going the other way. We were, we were almost Saudi Arabia's handmaid. Um, that being said, the House of Saud was undergoing its own um, Let's just call it a, a coup d'etat because, you know, the king of any country, the person he fears the most is not the kings of other countries. It's the princes of his own country. Mm. And that's what the House of Saud was going through. And Mohammed bin Salman, who is a force to be reckoned with, uh, cleaned house about a year into the Trump presidency. Trump went over. Uh, was greeted as, you know, a visiting king. I mean, he, he was given the red carpet, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, Mohammed bin Salman gathered up all the, the corrupt princes, basically put them under house arrest, stripped their bank accounts and put, put it back into the national treasury, and then let those guys go. And he said, by the way, if you step out of line again, you're going to lose your heads. He killed several of them. He did. He did, absolutely. So... I kind of look at, at Saudi Arabia as a necessary evil at this point. They have two things that, that keep them on the global scale. A lot of people think it's oil, but it's not. The two things that keep Saudi Arabia on the global scene is Mecca and Medina. They control those two cities. And I'll tell you, the Shia, they don't like it at all. Not at all. 
But if you take an objective look at the Shia versus the, uh, and I'm even talking about Shia fundamentalists versus the Sunni fundamentalism, there can be no doubt that the real threat is the Sunni, because the Shias are kind of looking inwards. They're not having this let's conquest the world ideology. Saudi Arabia are financing, propping up, training and weaponizing Al-Qaeda and uh, what you guys call ISIS, but Daesh. Uh-huh. And they, they've been doing it for the... Well, as well, building all the mosques around the world and all yeah. the training that goes on in the world and all the imams that are doing the training. Yes, yeah. you're right. They're behind it all. Yeah. And it's and interesting. Enough. So, so necessary evil, uh, I smile the day. Uh, Saudi Arabia is quenched. Right now, they're doing genocide in Yemen. Nobody's talking about it. They're completely protected. So, uh, in my view, Saudi Arabia is probably uh, the Satan's Vatican on Earth. <laughs> That's how far I would go to describe it. it. Yeah, I don't think there are too many people that can stand up for Saudi Arabia. Just look uh, at their culture, look at the way they treat yeah. their people. look at the way they use their money look at mosques that are being built all over Europe, the Christian churches all over Europe that are in flames Um, we have several protected organizations in this country, the MSA which is the Muslim Student Association we have CARE in this country both are protected organizations and they are working very hard to rip this country to ashes. Exactly and Someone else who's doing similar work is Israel. They uh, Now you're an anti-Semite if you're criticizing a fascist regime in Israel. Is. Nothing to do with Jews. They, uh, APAC or whatever you call, call it is having huge influence on your politicians. Basically, it seems to me that Al-Saud and Netanyahu is... And, and they are not even internal enemies for some weird reason. So... It seems to me they are calling the shots when it comes to geopolitics and that the only real uh, alternative to them are China and Russia. Comment? Yes. In fact, I'm looking at the actions of China and they, as a government, see what Islam is trying to do inside their country. Mm. And, of course, they took their totalitarianism and they stepped on it. Yeah. They started bulldozing mosques. They started rounding up, putting them in camps. They're deporting people. I mean, they're they're handling it in in the Chinese way. <laughs> Not really the way anyone else can handle it, but yeah. they are. Yeah. Europe, I'm I've lost hope. <laughs> I just have lost hope. Uh, they the invasion that they have been trying to accomplish for a thousand years, they have accomplished. There's no question about that. But what's going on in Israel is the is the craziest game of deception I have ever seen. You have uh, such a game that's being played between occupation and between Jews. But that's not even really the conflict. The conflict is between Israel itself, not Jews, Israel itself and the world. Mm. And this conflict has been going on for hundreds of years. It's only since they became empowered by, and I don't want to to sound anti-Semitical, but they have infiltrated uh, the legal profession, the entertainment profession, and the banking profession. They have sent tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of the smartest, 
most accomplished, brilliant minds they could find into these industries, and they dominate them. Okay, so these are people coming from Israel. They are not local Jews. Well, they're both. I mean, they originally came from there or from those tribes, and maybe they've been here two or five or even ten generations. Oh, okay. The strange thing about it is they have some kind of genetic allegiance to them. They feel like on a business level that they do business with each other and they take business from everyone else. Mm. I I don't know how to explain it any other way and I'm not trying to be anti-Semitical at all, but there's a reason why, for instance, in Hollywood, 75% of the Jews in Hollywood change their name. The reason they change their name to things like Douglas and Smith and, you know, Michaels Mm. is so the general public won't raise an alarm. Hey, wait a minute. 95% of this industry is owned and benefits Jews. Yeah, yeah. They would probably say uh, it's to avoid anti-Semitism. Sure. And it's, it's maybe not that way in the legal profession. But, it, and it's maybe, but what about banks? Isn't it a similar condition there? Absolutely. The total, the financing industry in the world. In fact, the world of finance was mm. created by Israel. The world of finance, the whole system of debentures and uh, uh, derivatives and all that was created uh, by these uh, professional bankers, a system of credit. Go- but hang on, Israel is, when did Israel, when was that founded? In 46, 47? Well, the state was founded in 1948, but they yeah. had economic power over Europe for 300 years. Mm. Yeah, it was regarded as below uh, uh, Christian uh, ethics or something to be involved in money, so they left it to the Jews. Well, it, it was an easy target because... When the bank controls the money, they determine who gets a loan and who doesn't get a loan, who gets to build a factory and who doesn't, who gets to buy this tract of land and build homes and who doesn't. Mm. And, I mean, it was a very easy target for someone full of hatred like Adolf Hitler to aim the German people at the banks because the German people had to take a wheelbarrow full of money to go eat dinner or buy a loaf of bread. But the bankers – were living like kings. Mm. They were living like kings. They didn't ride in steamships. They owned the steamships. Just like today. Yes. Just like today. So back to the agencies, Dan. We, we got a little background uh, here, but um, many people believe, especially on the left, they believe that, well, these institutions are there to our benefit, to protect us, and, and that may very well have been the intention at some point when it was raised, but they don't understand how easy it is to hijack these institutions and make them work oh, against the people rather than for the people. And, oh, about your cars. I think 
no better illustration of this when it comes to uh, your trade. Oh, about the electric cars? Yeah, electric. We'll, we'll talk about that because okay. we have to go into the incredible corrupt state of the car industry too. Sure. I mean, that's insane. You saw even Tesla uh, has problems. Uh, what was it? Uh, when it comes to look at what, what they've done against the brilliant Elon Musk and his Teslas. They're not giving it a fair chance at all. People think America's a free market. They think it's competition. <laughs> it's anything but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you hit uh, you hit upon a soft spot for me. Right. When Tesla Motors was founded, it was founded by 12 very smart engineers. Uh, they built an electric two-door car called a, 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 a Sportster, the, the Lotus. It was designed after the Lotus. In fact, Lotus Engineering were a lot of the people that formed Tesla Motors. Hmm. And uh, they sold cars into 85 countries. And, uh, you know, electric vehicles were slow to catch on. So they made it kind of a novelty and they weren't really profitable, but it was it was moving along. So they developed the Model S in the early uh, 2009, 2008 range. And they could not get the crash test rating that they wanted. They wanted a five-star crash test rating. And the Department of Transportation was just slow walking it and making them do another test and another test, and they ran out of money. Hmm. And at that time, of course, they were, they were privately held. So they did a capital call with their shareholders, and they said, look, we need more money. We've got to get through this crash testing with the Model S. This is, this is our breakthrough into the mainstream automobile world. Well, they went to all the shareholders, and when they went to Elon Musk, Elon Musk said, well, I'll put more money in it because I think it's, it's more a technology company than it is a car company, but I want more shares. So they agreed. They gave Elon Musk more shares. As soon as he got those shares in his hands, he was the largest shareholder in the company. He didn't own a majority, but he was the largest shareholder. So he did a hostile takeover, and he fired my 12 friends that founded Tesla Motors. He took it over. Wow. And uh, then he did a reverse merger with an existing publicly traded company. And he raised a little bit of money, but not enough to pay himself back and not enough to make the company profitable. And people were not happy. Hmm. In fact, the naked short traders started to create phantom shares of Tesla Motors and sell them at a discount on the market. It was a struggle. So they hired a market maker. A market maker is a, is a person in the industry that creates news about a product in order to make the stock go up or down. Mm. Well, this market maker was hired to make the stock go down. So he took one of the Tesla cars on a test drive and he destroyed it. He raced it. He ran it in the wintertime with the windows down and he it ended up running out of energy on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So he had it towed away in disgust, and he wrote an article in Time magazine, and the stock dropped by about 5% in one day. And we thought Tesla Motors was finished. Yeah. But Elon Musk was very smart. He sent an engineer to New York. They got the little black box out of the car that recorded everything that guy did to that car. And they discovered that he really abused that car. What was his agenda? Who did he work for? He worked for the market makers of Citigroup. Mm. Citigroup was naked shorting Tesla Motors stock, about 100 million shares of it. Mm. So Elon Musk released a press release that said, yes, the car failed, 
but it actually exceeded all of its design parameters. This guy purposefully abused the car. Well, it was just enough to make that stock go back up a couple percent. And when it did, it caught Citigroup without the shares to deliver. They had to have the shares by the end of business, and they didn't have them. So they had to go to the market to buy them. Within a month, the shares went from $21 a share to $210 a share. Elon Musk very wisely sold treasury stock into the market during this climb, raised another $400 million almost, paid off the uh, Department of Energy loan, which the agency was slow walking and trying to choke him to death with it, paid it off nine years early and told the Department of Energy to pound sand. But the good news is he burned Citigroup for about $1.2 billion, <laughs> and he saved Tesla Motors. And Gosh. that's the only reason that company is still around. He's still being shorted. He's, yeah. He made a threat to them this time. The last time they shorted him, he thought, okay, I'll show them. And he he uh, cost them $1.2 billion. And you'd think they would learn their lesson, but they're doing it again. Yeah, it's because those politicians are not out there to learn lessons or think what's best. They're on a payroll and they're just doing, you know, what the money tells them to do. That's the problem. Oh, no So I think, you know, I think Elon Musk should swallowing principles and he should start paying them back he should exploit that corrupt system yeah they're <laughs> get them over of- to you know our side well, <laughs> <laughs> that was all of it well because uh, as i understand it they are deliberately crushing all small businesses yes. all new innovations only facilitate this it's like the system is rigged to help Uh, multinational huge corporations well it's not like it is rigged it is set up to do that because Mm. the people that run the department of transportation that make the rules at the department of transportation are executives and former executives from general motors and other large corporations Mm. their job is not to make cars safer forget about that their job is to make sure nobody competes with them on the American highway. Mm. And it's that way in everyone. It's that way in the drug industry. Exactly. It's that way in the food industry. It's that way in radio communications and television. That's why there are only six media moguls in the world. Mm. They prevent anyone else from having a TV show or a radio show. I mean, your independent program and my independent program, we get away with it because we're on the internet. Mm. But how many listeners do we have? A couple hundred thousand, maybe globally. We're talking about people that control 95% of everything people see everything they read, everything they drive. And their job is to make sure no choices exist. Yeah, I was going to say that we we have had programs with others where we've exposed like the, uh, what you call it, the food food and drug um, regulation, FD, what's it called? Uh, The FDA. FDA. And, uh, yeah, we've learned how the um, uh, Department of Education is ruining education. So it seems that all these federal departments are doing more harm than good. Uh, and people may not know how they are organized. 
So maybe you should say something about, because you point on one very essential fact, and that's a revolving door. They hire people from the private industry, uh, and they become bureaucrats. Sometimes uh, it's politicians who make, they make a law, and then they go and work for that bank or that Wall Street firm, right? Oh, and, and normally what happens is the new president comes in, and he appoints his cabinet, and then he goes down through those agencies, departments, bureaus, and administrations, and he appoints new secretaries to those organizations. Normally, that's what happens. Hmm. But when President Trump was elected, Mitch McConnell and the establishment Republicans stopped all that. So President Trump has the smallest administration in almost 100 years because he cannot get his staff approved the democrats are allowed 30 hours of debate after cloture mm. that's if you can get the 60 votes what do they take they take all 30 hours every single time and they only work eight hours a day so every single appointment goes through this long arduous process yeah yeah but to be fair that that happens with every administration uh, it's not unique for for democrats uh, when uh, true. when obama took over it was basically uh, he hired everyone on citibank's list except one <laughs> yeah yeah and fired every single U.S. attorney in the country and replaced them within 30 days. Right. But here's the point. I, I think, uh, oh, I see what you mean. You, you're saying Mitch McConnell and those guys. Okay, you're saying the corporate Republicans and the corporate Democrats, you know, they're having their same, they're working for the same people, so they are kind of cooperating. That's right. That's exactly right. And yeah. this is why people want money out of politics. Because they see that all these politicians are owned by these corporations and by, even by foreign governments that have given them money yeah. to stay in power. But uh, the new defense minister is a boing man. So I, I don't think – I think Trump has lost that battle, honestly. Well, you could be right. But see, that's why this convention of states that we mention in Alienated Nation is so important. Yeah, tell us about that. If the Convention of States is allowed to happen, and people have to understand the structure of how this works. This isn't a free-for-all. You don't just have 34 states in there saying, well, I want an amendment you know, that allows people to marry dogs. You know, It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> really? But that's what they're afraid of. They think that if you allow an amendment, it means that all sorts of lunatic uh, agendas will, will, will come up. Yeah. Or, or Soros. I'm going to buy everything. Yeah. Uh, the left are afraid that they will reverse the abortion laws. The right, they are afraid that they will implement gay marriage, whatever, right? All the things they're afraid of, they're using that as arguments against amendments. Right. But they don't understand how the process works. The way the process works, and we've had three conventions so far, and there has been debate, but there's been a lot of agreement. What has happened is a set of operating rules for the convention have been established and ratified. And that is that all the amendments have to be agreed to in principle in advance before the convention ever happens. Right now there are six amendments. The first one, by far the most popular one, over 67% of the delegates are in favor of this, is term limits on Congress and the Senate. Hmm. 
by far the most popular. There are others. A balanced budget amendment. Uh, one of the most sweeping ones is called the Commerce Clause. The Constitution has a Commerce Clause in it, but it's very vague. In fact, it's so vague that it allowed Roosevelt to establish the agency government. And through court precedents and lawsuits, they have established what we now see today as our agency government, 653 agencies, I think, with federal authority hmm. and and subpoena power and everything. Well, all that goes away with this amendment. All those agencies, the EPA, the uh, Department of Education, they all lose their federal authority. That goes away. Hmm. And I also heard that um, it's not, I mean, if, if you manage to get, how many states have to uh, agree upon this to implement? Because we have 50 states, it takes 34 states to petition Congress to release what's called the Convention of States or an Article 5 convention. After that, Congress is out. Yeah. The U.S. Congress has no say in it. They can't even attend. It's a state convention. Each state gets one vote. Even if they have 200 delegates, they get one vote. Yeah. Hey, are, you, fam are you familiar with Wolfpack? Uh, no, I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, look into it. They have uh, they are lobbying or solely to get money out of politics, and it's like an activist uh, across the board, both left and right. And they have uh, people pressuring because yeah, we know federal politicians, federal politics is corrupted, but on the state level. It's, oh my god. You know, it's still possible to It's worse. <laughs> maybe but but it's still possible to pressure politicians because on a state level they're much more sensitive to be uh for votes. Yeah, your neighbors too. They they live right down the street and they're not insulated by water. Right? So they managed they managed now to get I think it's eight states since they started, eight states to ratify or whatever sanction that the promise basically that uh, they will support this money out of politics um, amendment. And you have to think how, how that's done uh, right now. Like the state of California, they only allow four parties. There might be 56 parties, but there are only four primaries in California. If you don't belong to one of those parties, you don't even get on the ballot. And if you can't get on the ballot in California, you cannot win an election. Who's the four parties? Uh, well, of course, you have Republican and Democrat, but then you have a socialist and you have what's called the Green Party. So the Libertarian Party is not represented in California? Not that I know of. It's an independent. So you have to run as an independent in California, which is a, a mishmash of 30, 35 different parties. Hmm. And there's just no money in it because uh, the, the way the – the matching funds in the state of California works, you have to belong to one of those four parties in order to get matching funds. And that's the, the same way in Indiana and other states. They limit who can get on the ballot based upon signatures and you have to be one of these approved parties in the state. And you have a lot of pressure to get rid of the Electoral College, which I think is exactly the wrong thing to do. Because that's the only thing that allows small states to even be involved in the presidential election. Hmm. In fact, I like it so well. I think that states like Texas and New York and Illinois and California, I think they should implement 
electoral colleges inside their state. That way, Los Angeles does not vote for California. Mm. And Chicago doesn't vote for Illinois. And New York mm. City doesn't vote for New York. Yeah, New Yorkers vote oftentimes radically different, more much more mainstream than New York City. Hmm. But New York City has all the people, so they have most of the delegates, and they control the state. I, th I think another solution would be rank choice voting. Oh, sure, yeah. Are you familiar with that? Okay, explain it to people. Yeah, well, what you do, uh, the simplest is a first and second choice. Like, okay, my first choice is, uh, in the old days, let's say my first choice was Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, and my second choice was Ross Perot. Um, and and so then what happens if the first choice doesn't win 50% or more of the vote, then it goes to the second choice. And once you uh, bring that second choice in, you now have a runoff between first and second, and third is out. So you would have had a runoff election between Ross Perot and George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton would not even have been in the election. So it means that you can basically give a little vote to several persons and the total amount is counted then. Because uh, if many people would choose, let's say, if more people would choose Ross Perot as a second than would choose Clinton as their first, right. then he would have a shot, right? Sure. Then you'd have a runoff between Perot and, and Bush. And, and mm. basically what you would end forever is people getting 41, 42, 40% of the vote and winning the election, mm. Mm. which is what happened in, in 1992. In 1992, Bill Clinton only won 43% of the vote. 57% of the country voted against him, except His opponent was two people. And because the vote was divided, Bill Clinton won. Uh, hang on. Uh, oh, two people. Yeah, Perot and Bush. Right. Right. And that... that, that. Yeah. Didn't the same happen now with uh, Trump, that he won the Electoral College but not the popular vote? Uh, no, this is a different story. In in Trump's case, I, I predicted in October that he would win 314 electoral votes because I went state by state and I polled not people that have landlines. I polled people that only had cell phones. And mm. what the mainstream media was doing is they were only polling people with landlines. That's right. They do it all the time. And that's in order to get them because they, they are the most mainstream brainwashed people. Yeah. Because they get all their news. And will, you know, give give the answers they are manufacturing on news, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what, I mean, it was unique because in 2012, we really had very few people with smartphones. But by 2016, almost mm. everybody had smartphones. Yeah. And we had a lot of people that had canceled their landlines. They didn't need them anymore. Mm. So when I surveyed people that had smartphones that did not have a landline anywhere, I asked them, where do you get your news? And they said, well, I get it off my phone. And I asked them, what What are you watching? And they, to, almost to a fault, it was like Drudge and Breitbart and Newsmax and World Net Daily and Zero Hedge. It was all these alternative sources that were not ABC, NBC, mm. MSNBC, CNN. They weren't watching that on their phones. Mm. And what I, then I asked them, who are you voting for? 
Well, <laughs> 87% of them were voting for Trump. Hmm. So when I did the math and then applied it to the Electoral College, I came out with 314 electoral votes. I missed it by five. Hmm. And the five was New Mexico. And I said that New Mexico would vote red, but it didn't. It voted blue. So I did another survey in New Mexico, and I found there were two counties in New Mexico that voted uh, for uh, Clinton. And uh, it was interesting because more people voted in those counties than actually live in those counties. Mm. So I yeah, think that, that uh, you know, in New Mexico was also, I think that's one of the places where the courts ruled that there was cheating in the Democratic primaries to prop up Clinton. Uh, and there were nine, there were nine precincts in the state of California, all of which were won on election night at midnight by Republicans, all nine. Hmm. But within a week, I call it ballots are us. The trucks showed up, dumped a bunch of ballots into the system, and lo and behold, Democrats won every single one of those districts. Mm. Same thing happened in Arizona. A Republican won the Senate seat, but a week later, it was a Democrat who won the seat. Mm. So now they're trying to pass a federal law that will apply to all federal elections in all 50 states. All votes have to be counted by midnight on election night. Is that to Tulsi Gabbard's proposal? That's one of them, yes. If the vote's not counted by midnight, doesn't matter if it's provisional or otherwise, mm. it doesn't count. And hand-counted, right? Well, however they count it in that particular state. That's up to the state to count it. Oh, right, right. But there's also on the ballot, I think, to have uh, indisputable uh, recipe. No, I mean receipt. Receipt is what you call it. A receipt, it. Yeah. right. A backup. It's crazy not to have that. It is. It's just insane. It is because there are software programs that can flip the electronic voting machines and then the program disappears without a trace. Exactly. And now you have no audit. You have no way of going back. Like in Pennsylvania, when Obama was elected, I can't remember now. I think it was pretty close to a dozen precincts in Pennsylvania Barack Obama won 100% of the vote. That's statistically impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's been um, university studies to prove different kinds of cheating. And when there's not receipts, then uh, they have other means to find out. I mean, that one is an obvious one. But there are other uh, scientific means to find out if something is, is not um, possible or or. or probable and and so we've had a program about this big, covering big it proponent of photo id and yep. i'm a big proponent of the purple finger you vote you dip your finger you show up at the poll again with a purple finger you're arrested you're right right but here in norway it's so simple and you could do the same what we do is that we have representatives for all parties not just the big ones but everyone who's represented because it's in everyone's interest right so if we have nine parties on the ballot all nine get uh, representatives to work for the election uh, organizations Interesting. and yeah and then they can monitor each other two people can collude 
like Republican and Democrats can collude. Okay, you win here and we'll win there, right? But when you have all nine parties represented, they can't do that. In addition, uh, everything is counted immediately when it closes. Uh, by the way, it's a, it's a holiday, so everyone can go there. I know in America they try to prevent people from voting, but here they want people to vote. So okay. it's a holiday if you want to, uh, you, you you're not working. So if you want to vote, and of course you can vote in advance, post postal voting. I don't trust that, but still, it, it's better than nothing. So then it's, they start hand counting it. Mm. It's physical papers that we put in. And we put it in an envelope and it's sealed and it's stamped and off you go. And it's criminally, if uh, the precincts, if they open it, if there's any sign of opening it, they will be charged. It's very heavy uh, laws against uh, tampering. So it's go. sealed, so, uh, signed, and then all nine parties are present counting it. And so uh, by the next day, you know who won. This system in America is just ludicrous in my mind. Well, but it's. I think it's kept that way on purpose yeah. because we have seen, especially here in North Carolina, uh, where foreign citizens are allowed to vote in our elections. We don't require any identification. Uh, they can vote in this precinct and then they can go two miles down the road and they can vote again and then go two miles down the road and vote again. And they do. And uh, right. It's that's like, crazy. We, we have mandatory. You have to show either your passport or other form of uh, accepted identification. It's ludicrous not to demand identification. Then, uh, then you can have a thousand people going a thousand places to vote, right? Well, like in the state of California, when you get a driver's license, you're automatically registered to vote. Oh. Then if you're not a U.S. citizen, you're supposed to contact the uh, voter registration office and inform them that you're not a citizen, and then they'll take your name off the rolls. Except nobody does that. Oh, wow. And so what they do is they go to the polls and they vote anyway. Yeah, right, right. Uh, here in North Carolina, we had what was called same-day registration. That means if you're not registered to vote, you can go register and then walk right in and vote on election day. So what the state did is they passed a law that said, okay, that's fine. You can do that. But we're going to set that ballot aside and then over the next 30 days, we're going to mail you a postcard to the address you put on your ballot. You have to get that report card, check that, yes, this is me, and then put it in the mail. It's post paid and send it back. And then your vote will be validated. But that's not what happened. A hundred thousand people registered to vote the day of the election and all those votes were counted. And our governor, who was doing a wonderful, fantastic job, was outvoted by 32,000 votes. Hmm. And we know that's how it happened. Right. We know that's how it happened. Well, uh, you need a system where there's one vote per citizen. The way we solve that is that you get uh, something called uh, an election card. So you deliver that and you show your identification. And if that's delivered, you cannot vote anymore. You voted once. See, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. And in every single election that we have, we have lots of people with smartphones now. And they stand outside the precincts and they say, wow, we just saw a bus show up from another state. Yeah. And these people are going in and they're voting. And 
we see it on the news all the time. And so that we'll say, well, yeah, but that's a very small number. Nothing to worry about here. And then you have candidates like Stacey Abrams and John Gillum in Florida who claim that there was voter suppression and if everybody was allowed to vote, they would have been elected governors. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And you know what Stalin said? He said, I don't care about anything else than who counts the votes. That's correct. So there's documentation that they, there's no protection of the votes after they're delivered. They've found, uh, you know, cars that's storing or driving the votes uh, open <laughs> with boxes missing. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh, I remember the Enterprise trucks showing up with pallets of, of ballots in them, all pre-voted, yeah. and they just... Pre-voted, yeah. Wow. Check out our, our, our show, people, called... Um, what is it called? We, we interviewed uh, Robert Fitrakis, who has looked into to cheat uh, election fraud for decades and blue box voting, dieball machines, all that stuff. So uh, that's, uh, but it seems to me it's not a very popular subject among um, people. Uh, I, I guess they get depressed. Mm. Uh, but I think solutions are important. And you've pointed out the fact that uh, an amendment is possible. And in that regards, people check out Wolfpack, support the work, help pressure your state to commit to such an amendment to get money out of politics because I think as soon as you guys manage to get money out of politics it will have like a domino effect I think so right yeah so and and don't forget about uh, the convention of states if you want to get involved it's free it's COS action like convention of states action COS action.com mm. and uh, what, what do those people do uh, what they do is create awareness and then what the people do is they call their state representatives and their state senators, not the U.S. senators, and they encourage them to pass the Convention of States resolution. We now have 14 states that have passed their resolutions. Wow. There are 22 more states that are considering their resolutions. You can go to COS Action, find out if your state has already passed theirs or not. And if they haven't, you can pick up the phone, you can send an email, you can write a letter, you can go by and visit their office and encourage them to approve the resolution. Is it uh, bipartisan? It is bipartisan. It has nothing to do with Republican and Democrat. It's just state residents. Are you involved in this? I am. I'm a state captain in uh, our city of Concord, North Carolina. Okay. Check if uh, those people are cooperating with Wolfpack. That's also bipartisan. If not, uh, maybe you, you have common interest and, and people have to organize together. Outstanding. Pardon? I said outstanding. Right. So let's hope that can cure it. Now, uh, there's more to talk about here. I want to get to the Clinton crime syndicate, but I want you uh, to explain us a little how the deep state works. Um, I mean, we've touched upon some random agencies, but would you say there's any agency in the bureaucracy that isn't corrupted? Well, maybe there is one agency that names federal monuments. <laughs> There's a possibility that one is not corrupt. <laughs> Great. Such an important work. So. <laughs> well, well, it's got 825 members of that agency. Each one of them makes in excess of $100,000 a year. Jeez. And all they do is name monuments around the country. 825 people working for yeah. That's it. There's an agency that comes up with national holidays and manages all the national holidays. 
We had the one of the worst agencies we have is called the General Services Administration. Years and years and years ago, they probably had a function. They are the government's eBay, hmm. but eBay does it so much better. <laughs> the General Services Administration is the schedule. They create a schedule that allows private companies to sell to the U.S. government. And obviously, the U.S. government is a very, very big customer. So everybody wants to sell to the U.S. government. But it's totally controlled by the General Services Administration. 12,500 employees. The average salary is $110,000 a year. And they perform zero value-added. Nothing. Hmm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. I guess there is a lot of redundant, obsolete, unnecessary departments and, and agencies and other kind of bureaucratic creatures in your machine. Well, anybody can go to a public site. It's called the Federal Register. Go to the Federal Register. Every single department, bureau, administration, and uh, and admin and. Uh, agency is listed there in alphabetical order hmm. you can see what they buy every and what they're putting out there for solicitation every single day some of them put out something every day some every week some every month but you can find out what your federal agencies are doing by going there that's how we discovered that like the u.s post office was going to buy a billion rounds of ammunition for for what Jeez. yeah it was <laughs> and post office is the last one. I mean, all the postman shootings, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, that, there are watchdogs that watch it all the time. But you want to see who's spending the money? It's right there in the Federal Register. Right. How, how many do you, do you uh, estimate you got? There are 652 federal agencies right now. Right. Which one would you say, I guess you support, you know, removing many of them, but which one would you say are necessary? Not not necessarily in the size that it has or in the way it works today, but which agencies or, or other bureaucratic institutions do you think we ought to have? I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I think that a form of the Defense Department should be there, but mm -hmm. I think the Defense Department is extremely corrupt. Oh, yeah. Probably uh, the most corrupt. You're, you're, are you familiar with the 50 trillion missing money? <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a small number too. Mm. But then, you know, the, the SEC, what's called the Securities and Exchange Commission. This is one of the most corrupt organizations the world has ever known. The uh, Department of Education, they don't educate anybody. That could be taken care of on the state level, right? Uh, well, I don't know. The federal Department of Education needs to be dissolved. It was yeah. That's what I mean. If you if you remove it, you can you know, or if they do any necessary tasks, those tasks can be done on the state level, right? Oh yes, yeah. It could actually be done on the county level, and and yeah. and at one time it was. And the brilliant thing about it is, of course, we had we had 
different states had standard exams that students had to pass. But there were 50 states. Mm. There were 50 different exams. And so what happened is the textbook companies would compete for the business in those 50 states, which meant there was a lot of variety. There was a lot of competition. Mm. But once the federal government got involved in making the federal exams, well, then we only got one textbook with one viewpoint because the idea was to pass that federal exam. And it did not take but about 10 years, history, mathematics, social science, government, politics, everything was rewritten yeah. according to federal standards, exactly what Stalin would have wanted. That's ludicrous. It can be no doubt that autonomy, decentralization is the thumb rule for something working smoothly, simply because when something is decided for someone, it's going to be tailored to those someone because it's going to be they're going to teach organized the by those. Yeah, they're going to teach the test because that's yeah. where the money is. But here in Norway, we had, for the longest time in the education system, we had uh, local uh, decisions. Then came a party who wants to copy America for everything, just knee-jerk, sure. nothing to do with looking into it. And so they implemented a national exam. Everything should be uh, the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge failure. But that's just what, what you get when you try one size fits all. Absolutely. Well, when you try to centralize stuff, yeah. look at the World Bank. It's the most corrupt bank the world has ever known. Look at the uh, International Monetary Fund. Look at the Bureau of International Settlements, right. how money is moved from country to country. All three of these organizations should be completely abolished. Hmm. And there, are, I could just go on and on in the federal agencies. It's, it's insane. The Department of Transportation is uh, – say that they're trying to make vehicles safer. But what they did is they took the price of vehicles from 1975 to 1985 and they doubled them. And then from 85 to 95 and from 95 to 2005, they tripled them. Mm -hmm. And now it costs as much to buy a car as it used to cost to buy a house. Right. And the cars are no safer than they were in, say, 1997. Right. With the same fatalities per 100,000 miles driven. Yeah, I've heard you talk about your struggle to keep up with their regulations. And, and as soon as you qualify, they find a new exactly. hula hoop for you to go through, right? Exactly. They'll, they'll go back to you. They, they move the goalpost. Yep. yep. They'll say your vehicle's too quiet. Your taillights are not bright enough. Your windshield wipers aren't fast enough. Your bumpers aren't high enough off the ground. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and they just bleed you to death. And this is the case on most areas, which means that it has to – there's such a, a, a narrow bottleneck that how can there be any innovation? How, how can there be new businesses? How can small businesses survive in this climate? Well, you see uh, what happened in the first two years of the Trump administration. They got rid of something like pretty close to 40,000 useless regulations. And immediately, almost overnight, business started booming. Mm. It, it started moving so fast that the Federal Reserve, which has the power over the uh, prime interest rate, they raised rates four times in one year so that they could choke off 
the growth of the American economy. They still <laughs> couldn't do it. It, it made it to 3.2%. Here's the crazy thing. We're taking in more tax revenue now with lower taxes and less regulations than ever in the history of the United States. But we're still running in the red because interest payments are so high hmm. that we cannot pay down the debt. The Federal Reserve has made it impossible for the United States to get out of debt. Hmm. Of course, you have uh, the situation. Uh, actually, I think in the beginning when Trump came to power uh, and there were some still people in his administration who had some visions about uh, doing things in a new way, unlike the neocons that's now floating it. I think he also had a rule that said for every new regulation, two has to be deleted, something like that. Yeah, but it turned out to be like seven or eight for every new regulation. They were getting rid of like seven or eight. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you mentioned the, the neocons and the establishment. And I, I'm saying that what we have going on right now is a global war. It is a war to try to take over the entire world. And there's only one thing in their way, and that's America. Right. Now, you have a chapter in your book called Wars Are Us. Yeah, wars are. Could you brief us on that? Sure. This is this is the permanent war mentality, and oftentimes we've seen it used when politicians get in trouble. Uh, wars are us is an organization inside the Defense Department, and what they do is they run practice wars all the time. They wonder, you know, what would happen if 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 the Russians invaded us on the shores of Florida wearing rubber gum boots and they create a, a scenario where they respond to that and they put it in an envelope and they put it in alphabetical order on the file. And what happens when a politician gets in serious trouble, like Bill Clinton did in 19, uh, in, you know, with Monica Lewinsky, but that was just a smokescreen. He was in trouble with China, China, selling technology to China for election money. He was going down. Well, he, his name was all over the press, and it was not good. It was not good. He was going to get impeached, but he was going to get impeached for something serious. And so what Hillary did is she went to Wars R Us, and she said, I need a war. I need a war, and I need it right now. And they said, well, you know, we have these old pictures of, uh, of Muslims behind a fence in Serbia, and uh, maybe you could, uh, you know, go say that these people were actually inside the fence. They were actually outside the fence. And, um, and we'll go bomb them for 90 days. And she said, excellent. And that's where the war in Kosovo came from. It's completely illegal war. Absolutely. And it was totally fake. The people that were photographed, the emaciated people that were photographed, were not inside the fence. They were outside the fence. The reporters were on the inside of the fence. But Hillary Clinton used it as yellow journalism to go bomb the crap out of Kosovo for 90 days. And by the way, at the end of it, Slobodan Milosevic and his army were unscathed and they had a parade because they they never got touched. Mm. And, of course, the Hague went in and arrested Slobodan and killed him in prison. And, and there's uh, a revelation not long ago. Uh, was it a whistleblower? It was, yeah, I think it was a CIA man or something who told how they manufactured the whole drum up to that Yugoslavian war. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Just in order to break up the country. Sure. And keep Warsaw Ross going, of course. Well, and the interesting thing is that the conflict of massive groups of Muslims coming into the country and draining all their national resources is exactly what Europe has been fighting ever since. Yeah, of course, they got mercenaries from all over, from Chechnya, from the Middle East. Everyone was called to come and defend, quote-unquote, uh, Kosovo against these. Yeah. Uh, this was the first of these modern illegal wars, so it was still a remnant, I'd say, of the old East-West bloc mentality. So the enemy, quote-unquote, was Russia, Serbia, uh, those countries. Sure. Rather than uh, they shifted now to, you know, to the uh, secular dictators in the Middle East. And so what did the globalists do? They put hundreds of millions of dollars into forced migration. They forced millions of people to leave their homes with nothing but the clothes on their back to overload immigration systems. Mm. The globalists have used and taken advantage of the weaknesses in our immigration policy for one reason and one reason only, and that is to destroy. They're still trying to break Yeah, and, and obviously wars are an excellent way to generate uh, refugee um, waves. Sure. But uh, you have another uh, chapter called the Occupati. <laughs> I, th I think that's an interesting angle on stuff. Could you give us a brief on that? Sure. At, at the time uh, that uh, Barack Obama became president, we, we really didn't know who he was. He was, he was a nobody. He was a, a do-nothing a senator. And he could read a speech very well. But uh, what he wanted to do was drive a wedge between the business community of America and, and the populace of America. And so he had an organization called the OFA, the Organization for Action. It was kind of an extension of his activism in Chicago. And what happened was these people would occupy public property like parks and sidewalks and schoolyards and things like this. They would occupy public property. They would plop their tents down and they would get national attention because the press was paid to go interview them. And they decided to make a national spectacle out of the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Now, this is a very, very old tactic. It's been used by the Marxists for a long, long time. It is designed to put the national focus on income inequality. I know it's a big surprise to most of your listeners, but there are rich people and there are poor people. And what the Occupy tried to make a crime was this difference. They didn't say, look, it's a crime that we're poor. What they said was, it's a crime that you're rich. But they were attacking the corporations, not the individuals, right? Well, yes and no, because they are corporations, but ultimately they're people. And today, in the United States, today, our 23rd presidential candidate on the Democrat side, a giant of a man in New York called Bill de Blasio, He continues this Occupy slogan. What did he say today? He said, there's plenty of money in this country. 
Mm. It's just in the wrong hands. Now, that's the same story that they were saying during the Barack Obama's OFA, during his Organization for Action. They were saying there's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. Basically, what Bill de Blasio is saying is those guys over there, they have your money. Go and take it. Mm. That's called a revolution, inciting to violence. Like those guys over there, those rich people living in those condominiums, they have your money. Go get it. We remember this. Exactly the same thing happened in 1939. When Adolf Hitler rose to power, he drove a wedge between the poor Germans and the wealthy business people in Europe. He said, there's plenty of money in this country. They have it. Go get it. It belongs to you. And they ripped the banks apart. They ripped the art museums apart. They ripped rich people's compounds apart. They dragged them into the streets. They took bats and knocked the gold fillings out of their mouths and took the gold right out of their mouths. That's so what about the original uh, Tea Party of Ron Paul and those guys? Well, this um, I, I don't mean the Cockbrother version that came later, which was basically Christian <laughs> fundamentalist, but the original, well, not the real original one, but the <laughs> one that was about the same time. Well, that's why it was called the Tea Party, because uh, what they were tired of was this continual mismanagement of enormous amounts of money by organizations like the Department of Defense. They could see during the Obama administration, when he started his administration, we were about $10 trillion in debt, a big number by any comparison. But then within eight years, it doubled. It went to $20 trillion and everybody could see this hockey stick jump in indebtedness it would have been one thing if we would have seen new airports or new roads or new parks or yeah. new airplanes or new energy technology but we didn't see any of that trillions and trillions of dollars were being flushed where nowhere well to, so, to to the criminals basically those who did the crime exactly so the tea party was furious And they said, we're going to put candidates in Washington that are going to stop this spending. And, of course, immediately the Democrats began calling them traitors and every name in the book to keep them from getting elected. But um, you seem to have changed your mind on the Occupy because in your book you argue that it was a healthy reaction just like the sure. Tea Party to against – I mean you, your title is Alienated Nation and you say they are all alienated from America but they are also alienated from one another. I thought that was a very good point. Yes, but in the chapter of the Occupy Party I also talk about what I call the professional voter. Yeah, The professional voter is a person who is paid to go to the polls and vote a certain way. In, in ancient times, I think it was Herodotus that said, when the populace can – it is the death of any democracy when the populace can vote for themselves a piece of the coffer. And that is what the professional voter does. The Occupy and the professional voter kind of blended into one. And what they said was, we are going to vote as a block so that we get part of that money. 
the Occupy Party and Tea Party were actually on opposite ends of the spectrum. What the Tea but Party, reacting reacting to the exact same thing. Exactly. It all grew out from the 2008 fiasco. Yeah, because the Tea Party was saying stop spending so much money, and the Occupy Party was saying we want you to spend money, but we want you to spend it on us. Right. So they were reacting to the same thing. They yeah. saw people going through, you know, a billion dollars an hour and nothing to show for it except they were getting richer and richer and richer. Look at China Joe. We call him China Joe, Joe Biden. <laughs> he flies his son to China on Air Force Two. So right. his son can do business with China, a billion and a half dollars worth of exclusive business. And by the way, his son has no experience in business at all. Well, he has experience with the corruption. Everyone Google, <laughs> Google, uh, I, I don't know his name, but um, Ukraine. Oh, yeah. And Biden's son. Hunter, Biden intervened uh, there yeah. and uh, forced some American um, Well, they actually got caught in Ukraine. Uh, Biden's son got caught doing business with a notorious oligarch in Ukraine. Right. And so the government had an official, kind of like our FBI director, and he was investigating Hunter Biden. He was going to put him in prison. And what Joe Biden said to the government is, look, uh, we got a billion dollars worth of aid we're prepared to give you, but I'm not going to give it to you unless you fire that guy that's investigating my son. Right. And six hours later, it was done. That guy was fired, and Ukraine got their loan. Yeah, amazing. And is this the the Nazi regime in Ukraine? There are actually three uh, organizations in Ukraine. You have Nazis. You have um, local communists, which are Ukrainian, and then you have Russian oligarchs. And these three are kind of fighting for dominance. But here's the difference. The Nazis, which still have a kind of quasi-SS on their arms, on mm. their uniforms, they are using Al-Qaeda. And they have heavy weapons like 50 caliber and 20 millimeter cannons. And it's pretty, it's pretty devastating, the weaponry that they have their hands on. And they're fighting both. They're fighting the Russian oligarchs and they're fighting the local communists. But the, but the original government there that was more Russia-friendly and that was uh, basically through a coup, they were toppled by a CIA and a coup. Sure. They were neither of those three factions, right? Uh, well, yes and no. They were leftovers from World War II. So they controlled mines and they controlled uh, foundries and a lot of the heavy industry, but they were privately held. And uh, they were they were kind of trying to use it to control the country. A lot of people don't know this, but Ukraine has been part of Russia since 1760, a long, long time. I mean, they share a border. Mm -hmm. Um but the oligarchs became multi-billionaires off of war, and they're very smart, and they're very tough, and they largely want to be left alone. They don't want to be part of any government. They want to have their own private industry. Ukraine kind of suffers because 
all this wealth is controlled by very few people. Maybe a dozen of these guys control all this wealth. Hmm. And that's why, you know, Yanukovych was Crimean. He wasn't Ukrainian. He was Crimean. He was kind of flamboyant and difficult to handle. And well, but, but, he, but at that point, I think Crimea was a part of Ukraine, right? It was before they seceded. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of, because there's there's a really skinny piece of land between Ukraine and Crimea. Crimea kind of sticks out in the Black Sea. And Crimeans, for all intents and purposes, are Russians. They, yeah. They're yeah. German uh, exiles from before World War II, but they're generally Russians. They have an open border with Russia. What happened in that period of time when John Kerry and all this was – and John McCain were trying to work their deals there is that Europe uh, – I mean Crimea wanted an open border with Europe. They wanted to be able to move back and forth through Europe and Europe was not going to allow it. Hmm. But Europe wanted to loan them money. They wanted to loan Ukraine a lot of money which we know this game. They put him heavily into debt. Then when they don't pay the debts, Europe moves in and takes control. So Yanukovych was pretty much broke, and he was ready to sign the loan documents with the EU. And then that's when the phone call came in from uh, Putin and said, don't sign those loan documents. I'll loan you the money, and I will give you discounts on natural gas mm. so that have warmth in the winter. Right. And so Yanukovych didn't sign the loan agreements with the EU. And within days, I mean literally hours, yeah. Yeah. McCain and Kerry sent in militants to start burning the city to the ground. Now it took six weeks for this to make the news. It took a long time because nobody cared about Kiev. But once it got... Plus the news is controlled by the corporations. <laughs> sure, yeah. exactly. But once it got on the mainstream news, then they could write their own narrative and they forced Yanukovych out of office. Yeah. They brought the criminal who they had in prison for corruption out of prison and, <laughs> and that person took over Ukraine. And it's been corrupt ever since. Yeah. Fascinating. Geopolitics is very interesting. Well, people need to count out Ukraine because they, are, they have a tremendous amount of natural resources, but much more than this. They have a tremendous intellect in that country that cannot be denied these are the people that were at the core of the soviet rocket technology mm -hmm. they're like the pakistan of europe they are the technologists and they're not to be trifled with they're very very powerful people uh, hang on uh, the pakistan of europe i'm not familiar with that expression well, pakistan, pakistan is in asia obviously yes yes but pakistan pakistanis are also some of the best weapons builders. Oh, right. Like that in Europe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. I get yes, it. They're the biggest weapons builders in the Middle East. They're even bigger than, than Israel. And this is why Pakistan and India, I mean, they're both nuclear powers. Yeah. Very few nuclear powers in the world, but that's two of them. Yeah, and that's Pakistan true. is not to be trifled with either. I see. I knew, I knew Indians were, were into stuff like that, but it, I guess it goes for Pakistanis too. Well, the interesting thing about India, of course, they're big and they have a lot of people. They are they are probably the smartest nation in the world. They have more honor students in India than America has students. Jeez, wow. And if you go back 2,000 years, maybe more than that, I don't think India has ever lost a war. They've been occupied. I mean, the Brits, you know, 
yeah. uh, occupied them for a while, but the Indians didn't lose the war. They could have easily wiped the Brits off the face of the earth if they wanted. <laughs> they managed. They, uh, they may be the only country who have managed to free themselves without a violent uprising. That's pretty clever. I, you know, when I got my PhD, uh, I would say half the students in the university were Indians and they were all brilliant. Yeah. Yep. No, it's, it's known. It's known. But let's now get to the Clinton crime syndicate. Uh, obviously, your book Alienate Nation is factual, whereas the new one, what's the name of the new one? Uh, well, it's Charm of Favor, a true story of the rise of the Clinton crime syndicate. Right. And, and you used fiction as uh, expression form, but you, like you said, the ingredients are facts, right? Yes, it's, it is factual history. All the murders, all the subterfuge, all the espionage is real. It comes right out of the news. What I do is create fictional characters that can put you on the ground as a as kind of an eyewitness of all that stuff as it happens. Right. Uh, so fill us a little in on this. Well, the substantiation is that there is an overarching intelligence to the international criminal activity that's going on in the world. In other words, the forced migrations, the actions of the Federal Reserve, the movements of armies and money, and even the stuff that Iran is doing right now, supporting Hamas and Hezbollah and all that. It's All this is very, very well coordinated. And what we realized very early on in doing the research for this book is that there is some single source. In fact, who's in charge of all this? Who's actually writing all the talking points that all the news organizations around the world are so coordinated, right on cue, and they just all take the same position. They never argue with one another. Mm. Who's in charge? And I don't know. I don't know who's in charge. So what I did is create the book around the Clinton crime syndicate because the Clinton family, the Clinton dynasty, which kind of started in the late 80s, grew through the uh, movement of drugs and weapons back and forth with cash to the Iran-Contra deal. And it compromised. Yeah, they were they were originally a subdivision of the Bush dynasty, right? Yes. Well, we I'm not really sure how this started, but the Bush dynasty they wanted to feed weapons to the Contras in South America to fight against the Cubans and the communists. Congress wouldn't give them the money, so they decided to buy drugs off of them, use the money to buy weapons and send weapons back down. And, and we know we know that CIA, that's been revealed, uh, and it was also revealed in that yes. uh, instance. Uh, they are controlling the drug traffic. Well, it took place in Mena, Arkansas, mm. and Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. Right. So what happened was he became involved by protecting the CIA operation that was happening out of Mena, Arkansas, and he skimmed money mm. off the operation. There was a lot of cash to go around. So what happened in the early 90s, I'm sorry, the late 80s, is Clinton began collecting all this cash. Well, he needed something to do with it, 
And he and Hillary, they wanted to run for the White House. Hmm. Well, I got news for you. Uh, in, in 1991, I don't think we've ever had a more popular president than George H.W. Bush. He had like a 91% approval rating because of 9-11. It was, it was I yeah. mean, because of, uh, of the uh, Iraq war. It was crazy. It was just crazy how popular he was. Nobody thought that Bill Clinton could beat George H.W. Bush for a second term. It just was impossible to think of. Mm. But Bill Clinton had compromised Bush by tapping into the cash that they were funneling through Mena, Arkansas. And what Clinton did, it's the infamous Manila envelope campaign. They couldn't run the money through the banks. It, they had warehouses full of cash. What they did is they stuffed the cash into Manila envelopes and they bought, they bribed the superdelegates of the Democrat Party. That's how Bill Clinton knew he could win. Plus, they encouraged Ross Perot to enter the race and divide the vote. And Clinton was elected in 1992. Mm. That was the beginning of the true power of the Clinton crime syndicate. It didn't stop there. They formed dozens of foundations in several countries. And they began moving not a small amount of money, billions of dollars of drug cartel cash moving around between these so so efficiently no one could even track it they tried to audit the clinton foundation trying to find out where in the world they were getting their money from where it was going to how is it that they were so wealthy personally because they didn't do anything they didn't own anything mm. the money was going out of the clinton foundation through a series of other foundations back from a foundation in canada back to their personal accounts when the SEC tried to audit the foundation in Canada, they told them to go pound sand. Hmm. Said, this is a sovereign country. We're not telling you anything. Could you give us an example? Like, do you know about the Haiti scandal? Yes. Uh, what happened in Haiti, of course, it was a great earthquake that happened there. It pounded the crap out of this third world country. The Clintons moved in and they set up three things. The first thing they set up was cell phone uh, systems. Of course, all the cell phone systems you had to pay to use. And mm. the Clinton Foundation owned all of it. The second thing was what's called pay or uh, education for profit. So they set up schools, except it costs money to be part of the schools. And so they drew in money that way. The third thing that they set up was a relief organization called the Clinton Initiative. And when people tried to help, they tried to send food or clothes or housing or whatever. They said, no, 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 no. Don't send any of that stuff. Send cash. Hmm. And they sent cash upon cash upon cash. Billions of dollars. And none of it got spent in Haiti. It all went back through their chain of foundations and directly into their private accounts. It's amazing. Ripping off uh, the poorest of the most desperate people. And and. and plucking on people's heartstrings to give and then just and robbing it. The interesting thing is a lot of the other Democrats like Corrine Brown in Florida and other Democrats, even some Republicans tried to copy what I call the Clinton manual for self-enrichment, mm -hmm. except they left a few pieces out. They got caught and they would. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Uh, why, why haven't um, 
By the way, do you name the Clintons in the book? Absolutely. Okay, so it's not even uh, disguised uh, nope. like that. I have a conversation that Bill Clinton has with an agent. I, I, oh, so the fictional part is just you imagining what they're saying. Yes, you know, in conversations, they're saying how they put it together and the things that mm. they do. They, f- they plan uh, things, events in order to get legislation that they want passed. Passed, but the interesting thing is they're not really in charge. They're taking orders from this ancient intelligence. I don't name it but I just say that it's there and they have an agenda mm. and their agenda is to destroy America. And if people can get rich, I mean rich, so rich it would take a thousand lifetimes to spend the money that they're taking in and still they want more. Then this- those, those are the people who were uh, targeted by the Occupy people. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. not, not the middle class. But they went after him in the wrong way. The right way to go but after But they were youths. Well, the right way to go after him is the way Trump went after him. What Trump did is he decided to do battle with them, and he forced them to put down their masks and come out in the public arena and fight him. And when he did that, we, the people, got to see them for who they really are. But how come how come uh, the Clintons got away with it, and not these lower level copycats? Uh, well, like Corrine Brown, what she did is she set up the foundation. That part was fine. Then she came up with a good cause, putting uh, minority students who couldn't afford it through college. That was a good cause. They took the money in. But she forgot to launder the money through another foundation back uh-huh. around. She just spent the money. Right, right, right. And that's how she got caught. And she's going to spend the rest of her life in prison. Mm. So they just they just get greedy. They don't set it up. They don't take enough time. And mm. the Clintons mm. had an advantage in that they tapped into the CIA's drug operation and they siphoned cash off of it. Yeah. And it was sort of like the preacher that decides to skip church one day and go play golf. So he's out there playing golf, and he's having the time of his life because the good angel and the bad angel are sitting one on the left shoulder, one on the right shoulder. He strikes the ball, and the bad angel runs out there and lets the ball roll right into the hole, a hole in one, and he comes back. And the good angel says, what are you doing? This guy is violating the Sabbath. He's out here playing golf, and you give him a hole in one? And the bad angel says, Who can he tell? <laughs> right. This is what it was like. So yeah. what we're really trying to do is we're trying to expose them for their taking advantage of the system. Are you uh, naming sources in the book? You don't have to when it's fiction. Uh, but... I, I, have, I have some sources I go ahead and put in the footnote. Mm. There are a couple that I didn't put the source in because I was afraid that that they would get killed. And here's one of the sources. Um, in when I was when I was working in uh, for a period of time as a process engineer trying to write documentation for the acquisition of Wachovia Bank by Wells Fargo Bank. While I was in that department, the Wachovia Bank actually got busted for laundering Sinaloa drug cartel cash and they paid a fine. So at shortly thereafter, Wells Fargo added a 
member of the board of directors, uh, a tall, smooth talking, you know, board of director. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Wells Fargo went ahead and make the, made the acquisition and everybody expected that this laundering of drug cartel cash would go away, that this was wrong. It was against the law. They paid a big fine that all that would end. Well, periodically, banks have to undergo independent audits. So the independent auditor goes to Wells Fargo, and one of the things that they audit are bank accounts that don't have proper identification, like no birth dates or no birth certificate or no social security number, no home address, things things missing. Hmm. Because bank officers get a commission based upon the new bank accounts that they open. Well, what he found were tens of thousands of bank accounts that did not have proper identification with them. That wasn't the strange part. The strange part was there was cash coming into these accounts Mm -hmm. and leaving these accounts. Mm -hmm. And he started tracing the money. And the money went right back to the same bank in California and the same bank in Mexico. The Sinaloa drug cartel cash laundering was still going on. So this is an auditor. He caught it. He documented the money. He documented the bank officers that were handling the money, moving money in and out. He traced it all. He created a thousand-page dossier. This would make the 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 Russia dossier looks sick in comparison. So he decided that he was onto something very criminal. So he went to the district attorney in New York because this took place in uh, the Southern District of New York. So he goes to the district attorney and he lays out the case. Here's what's going on. Here's the money. We're not. We're talking over three hundred billion dollars moving through this bank in a period of time. They never stopped. They kept doing it. So that, And he said, when I leave here, I am dropping my cell phone in the Hudson, and you're never going to see me again. I'm, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this auditing all my life, but this time, I'm out. I'm so he knew, he knew what he was up against. Yeah. Yes. So he turned it into the DA, and he disappeared. I changed his name in the book to do him justice. Oh, wow. So you've been in touch with him personally. Well, once removed. Right. right so right. This, now here's the breast of the story. That district attorney took that evidence, went through it, but instead of charging the bank or charging any of the bank officers or catching the money, instead, this district attorney filed a notice of deferred prosecution. And they made a deal with the board of Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo said, you know what? This is a travesty. It's terrible. We're so sorry that this happened. We're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to reassign a few people, and this is never going to happen again. They paid a $1.2 billion fine, cost of doing business, and that was the end of that. A few months later, that board member was plucked out of Wells Fargo Bank and was made head of the FBI under the Barack Obama administration. And a few months after that, that district attorney that filed the notice of deferred prosecution that let it all go was plucked out of that position and made attorney general. It was Loretta Lynch. Right. Yeah. Now you see the building of the Clinton crime syndicate. Yeah. It was enormous. It was extremely wealthy and it was treacherous. I remember the she had a meeting uh, on the Tamarack 
uh, with Bill during the investigation of Hillary. What do you think about that? Uh, it took in- place on the Sky Harbor Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, here's the truth behind this. The public does not know this. If they read this, okay. they'll know. Okay. The night before that meeting, Loretta Lynch gave a speech in Baltimore. Her husband was with her. They got finished with the speech about 9 p.m., all the handshaking and all that, and she got a telephone call. She was supposed to be in Phoenix, Arizona the following afternoon to have a meeting. But she gets a call. You're going to go to the airport right now, and you're going to get on your jet, and you're going to fly to Sky Harbor Hotel, or Sky Harbor uh, Airport, and I'm going to meet you. And she said, but but it's 9 o'clock at night. It'll take me an hour to get to the airport, and we've got to rearrange things with the pilot, file a new flight plan. It's going to raise some flags. He said, I don't care. You get on the plane, and you get over here. Well, anytime you change a flight plan like that, it is an alert, and that's exactly what happened. The alert in Baltimore was sent to an informant, and that informant sent the information to Phoenix to an individual named Chris Sign, and Chris Sign was a reporter for Channel 5. Mm-hmm. He was asked to be at Sky Harbor Hotel when that jet arrived and try to report on this meeting. Something big was going to happen. Now, do the math. They get on the plane at 10 p.m. Loretta Lynch knows who she's going to meet with, and she knows that it's illegal. She needs a witness And the only witness on earth that could not be compelled to testify against her is her husband. So they get on the jet together and they fly from Baltimore in the jet all the way to Sky Harbor Hotel. They arrive about 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, people didn't know that that meeting took place after midnight. Hmm. So the jet rolls up. They do the post-flight. They drop the stairs down. Bill Clinton gets out of his jet, gets an SUV, drives the 75 yards, because it's about 100 degrees on the tarmac, even though it's after midnight, gets out of the SUV and walks up into that jet and spends 45 minutes. And Chris Sign was standing no more than 150 feet away with his camera. And the FBI standing outside and the uh, Secret Service standing outside the other jet said, you put that camera away. No recording, no pictures. And he knew his life was in danger at that moment. He's standing behind the fence at General Aviation on the patio. One picture gets out. Not from his camera, but from the surveillance camera of that tarmac. And, And it shows this meeting taking place. That's the only way we knew that this meeting took place is because Chris Sign took his life in his own hands and he decided to report on it on these television program. Chris Sign is still a reporter, but he's doing sports. <laughs> yeah, we know. Well, he can count himself lucky because what they usually do is that they promote those that support the divorce and got everything wrong. And they boot those who were against the war. I'm talking in the press now. Yeah. And got, got it right. Oh, they attacked So, so he was just demoted. Yes. And they attacked him. Oh, they, the, the press within hours was marshaled against him, but they picked the wrong guy because Chris Sign is an excellent human being. 
He's mm-hmm. a football star. He referred back to his old coach and said, what do I do? And the coach said, you do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so he stood his ground and he, he said, everything I said was true. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason the world knows about the Bill Clinton, Loretta Lynch meeting what we don't know is the extent of that deal, but right. we think it was an offer to her that if she would let the prosecution of Hillary Clinton go, disappear, mm. she would be appointed as the next Supreme Court justice. Right, right. And by the way, a few days before this meeting, Antonin Scalia was killed. A few days after this meeting... Seth Rich was murdered. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Seth Rich. Uh, I, I think he is the le- – we, we all know it's a leaker. It's not a hack. That's bullshit. But Assange, more or less – you, you know, he, he can't admit who's his sources. If he starts doing that, it's over. Yeah, he puts – But I saw the interview. He, he, he kind of lost uh, – what's it called? He um, involuntarily gave away that it's Seth Rich. What do you think? I don't know if he did or not. He was asked by Sean Hannity if Seth Rich was his source. And what he said was, our informants do take their lives in their own hands. And then he was asked directly if Seth Rich was his contact, and he wouldn't say. Mm -hmm. But he did say, this information was given to us by hand on a device in a park. What should have happened at that point? Sean Hannity should have said, which park? Hmm. If he would have and, – and, and Assange could have got away with this and still not given away his source. He could have said the park because if he would have said the park, they could have gone back to the surveillance footage of that park. Yeah. And they could have followed every single person that went in and out of that park for a week. Unless they have sanitized the evidence. But I think it's ludicrous to protect sources who are dead. I don't get that. Why are they they doing that? And there's more, too, because one of uh, Seth Rich's other uh, officers, or not Seth Rich, Julian Assange's other officers was on a train in Europe, and he was tracked, and he alerted the Assange organization that he had been made, and he never got off that train. Wow. They found his his bag floating in, in the river. This guy was so good, he was able to kind of physically disappear at times, but he had told them that he had been made. He had been identified on the train, and he feared that his life was in danger. So they thought maybe he dropped off the grid for a while, but his bag was found in the river, and they haven't heard from him. It's been well over a year. He probably had something new that they got but um, the prosecution not the prosecution the investigation of clinton it was led by the fbi chief at the time who was a republican i forgot his name what was his name again um not Mueller. Mueller is the one who's gone after well who's also a republican by the way who went after trump but the one under clinton well we had ed mccabe and then you had sally yates who was in the uh, DOJ, and then you had uh, who I call Comey Chameleon. Comey, Comey, that's it. James Comey. Yeah, he was a Republican. Um, he was hated uh, by both parties, and then he was loved, then he was hated. <laughs> it went back and forth, depending on what, what turned out, right? Well, we remember, you know, in July of 2016, when he decided to make the public statement, which was unprecedented. I mean, never happened before. I was standing in front of the TV 
you know, sipping a cup of coffee and going, oh, my gosh, he's making the case. He's going to charge her. And then at the end of it, he said, uh, no, uh, no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case. But but uh, why didn't they, uh, you know, the Clintons refused to give up their servers, obviously, uh, because they claim it's a hack. They couldn't give it up because then they would know it's not a hack. Why didn't uh, they just demand the servers? I mean, if FBI shows up at your place, you can't say, no, I won't give away the server. Well, there are two different servers that we are talking about here. One is the server with the DNC. Now, the DNC said that the Russians hacked it, but they wouldn't let the FBI look at the server, and they still haven't to this day. The other server is Clinton's private server. Right. Now, there were more than one server over the period of time. and Hang on. Is this a Guccifer thing? Well, Guccifer was kind of a not real. Uh, because I think it was a, a red herring. Oh, okay. Uh, I think what happened was that the Clinton server was routinely accessed by foreign powers, and that was by design. The things that were put on there were being sold ah. for uh, special favors later on. Right. And the one server was in Colorado, and the other server was in uh, Chappaqua, which is which is where they live. And the server disappeared from there. We believe that it's in the hands of Mr. Basea, who is the attorney general of California at this time. He was working for the Clintons at that time. We believe that he took the server with him, that that server still exists somewhere. But there were insurance policies taken off of that by Huma Abedin, who had complete access to that server. Yeah, I remember that. Unfortunately for the Clintons, that laptop ended up in the possession of the FBI. Because they were investigating her husband, right? That sex maniac. Correct. Anthony Weiner. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that Comey was in charge of all that investigation. And he made sure, I think, that that laptop did not end up in the right hands. Hmm. Uh, We don't know that for sure. For all we know... Uh, Horowitz, who is the Office of Inspector General, knows where that server is, knows what's on that server, and the indictments have been made, but the prosecution has not been started. And that's why Attorney General William Barr has hired uh, Mr. Durham, who is a world-renowned prosecutor, and uh, they're going through this, and I'm looking for the head of the snake, Maybe John Brennan, maybe uh, Clapper and others to be mm-hmm. charged probably by the end of May. Oh, that would be wonderful. Those are disgusting human beings. But I, mean, uh, I, hear, I hear you say that, and but I also hear lots of Americans saying the same thing. They have, they're almost to the point where they've lost faith in America – because of this justice system that has not delivered justice. Yeah, but those people aren't America, goddammit. Those people are the enemies of uh, the original idea of an America. These people are the spooks of the national security state, the industrial military complex. So the fact that people are waking up is a very good sign, I think. It is a good sign. I, I think that 2018 was actually the year of awakening. But so now we're awake. So now it's 2019. How about we have a year of light? 
and we have mm. a year of justice. Mm. And we start putting these people in jail. Start with John Brennan, but don't stop until you get them all. Yeah. All the way down to, uh, you know, Sally Yates and Ray and McCabe. And let's not forget people inside the uh, Obama administration like uh, – Oh, you, why stop there? Go back to the Bush administration. Exactly. If they're still around, go go for them all. Let's. You know. Well, some of them are in actually in the current government. But uh, like I said, I'm more pessimistic than you. I'm not holding my breath for any arrests. Uh, I haven't seen any elite people, whether they be Wall Street or, or the war industry or whatever, uh, drug industry, uh, all this stuff, be accountable ever in modern times it seems that they're getting away with everything but it starts with getting money out of politics so if people don't get the butt off their sofa and do something then we really don't have anyone else than ourselves to blame. i agree more we as a nation of 330 plus million people we don't have any business having an elected official be in office more than two or three terms hmm. it's just we have so many smart people that could do so many wonderful things, yep. but we keep electing people like uh, Maxine Waters and uh, Richard Blumenthal. Diane Feinstein, um, she's a up. disgusting creature. Yeah. Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi. Oh, my God. There's so many. Uh, it goes on. Look at Nadler. I mean, holy crap. Talk about a hitman. And, you know, then you have people that uh, lied and cheated and, and sexed their way into office. We have Kamala Harris. We have Cory Booker. We have – it goes on and on and on, one criminal after another. Yeah, just but just to be clear, just to be clear, you admit uh, – it's not a partisan thing, this, because uh, you, you almost only name Democrats, but the, the corporate hacks are just as much represented in the Republican field, right? Yes, and I will say that 45 Republicans are gone. They they got out. Rather than be prosecuted, rather than be caught, you know, the Ryans, the the uh, Corkers, the ah, Flakes, right. lots and lots of Republicans are gone because their old establishment piggy bank yeah. is now cracked open, yeah. and they decided to get out while the getting was good. Democrats, not so smart. They hung around just a little bit too long. Interesting. Hmm. Well, we'll see how this all turns out. Um, because everybody is accepting that there's crooks on both sides, but they're hypersensitive to partisan hacks. Yeah. For good well, reason. Well, the one thing you could be sure of, if, if you have a politician that is groomed, he's probably going to be corrupt. Somebody's going to own him. Yeah. That's what's nice about Trump is he's private. Nobody can buy him. They can buy him, but I, I suspect there is other means of um, pressuring going on. I, I don't buy into some of the reports about the war behind the scenes, and I don't believe this QAnon thing, because they never deliver. But if you just look at the outside, it seems that he's losing the the power battle in his own administration. Uh, of course, that's what they say. You need to read Charm of Favor. Because what I wrote in that book in 2011, long time before Q ever came along, yeah. is exactly what Q is was doing. So they lifted it from your stuff? I don't think so, because it wasn't published. It was in a form of a screenplay, and it was on my computer. But, but I think it's an interlope. 
to muddy the waters. Uh, possible. But the, I've done statistics my whole life. Mm. I have a master's degree in it. I've run the statistics on the Q drops and the, the uh, Trump posts, and there's way too much coordination. I mean, within seconds of another. Right. Have you heard about uh, Steve uh, Pishinek or whatever his name is? He he talked about he he's an ex Intel guy. Um, I forgot from where NSA or Feds, Federal uh, FBI or something. But he's been talking about this war behind the scenes. It's big. It's big yeah. because there's so much at stake. But I will tell you, it's a small, tight group of ultra hackers, maybe inside the NSA. Uh, but but they are predicting stuff that's not coming to fruition. Not necessarily. What they're doing is they're they're manipulating the public. They're giving them information to make them look at certain things. And you got to remember, as soon as they put it out, the other side moves. The other side takes a counter move. It is this is espionage live. It's not predicting. They're actually it's an espionage war that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I never really bought into the thing where they would say trust the plan, trust Sessions. I don't believe any of that. That was a big weakness. Uh, Jeff Sessions was compromised almost out of the gate. Yeah, and, uh, I don't I don't think he was he was part of the plan. He was part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, he wanted to throw uh, weed smokers in jail. I mean, uh, that says it for me. Well, <laughs> He's a f- goddamn fascist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The problem was that Jeff Sessions had way too much to lose. He has a huge family, and all, they threatened his grandkids, and that's all it took for him to back off. Oh, right. So you think Trump got in on board as a hopeful player? to help and then they got to him that's what happened yes mm. and uh, you know he when i went to trump tower during transition it was crazy it was crazy insane they were trying to put together a cabinet and they pretty much didn't have a clue what they were doing no none of the establishment republicans were helping them there was mm. they couldn't trust anybody it we didn't know i mean when i was there i didn't know that they were being wiretapped we all thought it was, you know, straight up, but they were listening to everything they were doing and every yeah. move they made, the other side made a counter move and they couldn't figure out who was leaking, how it was happening. And then when uh, Admiral Rogers went over there and went up to, to Trump and said, look, you guys got to get out of here. This whole building's wired. They're listening to everything you do. And it was after they left and went to New Jersey, but the damage was done. They were going to take Flynn out. They were going to take every single cabinet member that they had appointed. They had targeted. But, but it's amazing that this was exposed in the press. Yes, it was. It was exposed in the New York Times. And people thought he was crazy. In fact, they said yeah. at the time, if this proves out to be true, it will be, it will be horrible. It will be terrible. Yeah. Well, guess what? It was proved out to be true. And now they're saying. And it was just a blimp. Yeah, no big deal. It was no big yeah. deal. We were just conducting an investigation. But 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 what about? I mean, I'm counting five or six neocons. Six, if you count Nikki Haley, that bitch. Yeah. So what about those people? And you know, what about them going after Assange now? Well, I don't know who they are, but I I think Trump, well, the administration obviously. Trump wants to pardon 
Julian Assange. Oh, he, he, I mean, we have all been writing for a long, long time that he's probably the, the best reporter we've ever had. And yeah, sure. he exposed some bad stuff and some of the bad stuff was ours. Well, so what? It was true. And yeah. Sean Hannity is so supportive of Julian Assange. I can tell you the Trump administration, the core of it supports Assange. He can't come out publicly and say anything because of the the stigma that's around Assange as a traitor. But he's not a traitor. He's an Australian. No. He was just reporting. He never hacked anything. No. Whistleblowers. They, they they never, and WikiLeaks is the only organization in the world, press organization, that's uh, never been caught in an um, truth or an, an fact. But still, uh, why, if he wants to pardon him, why isn't he pardoning him? They're going after him. Well, because it's not America that's prosecuting him. It's Sweden, which is crazy. But, you know. Well, they, no, they, they dropped it. There. They've dropped it, actually. Uh, so, but, I thought they just reassigned it yesterday. They brought it back. Yeah. Right, but that's not. But it's still, uh, they're going to extract him according to what's his face, this uh, creep that's um, uh, in the administration, not Bolton, but the other guy, ex CIA chief. Um, oh, Brennan? No, no, no. He's in the administration. Um, the big neocon, other than Bolton. Uh-huh. He, he's the one who wanted to uh, make Assange. He's the one who made a, a espionage thing. You know, before that, it was uh, a press thing. But if you turn it over to become an espionage thing, then you can actually give him death penalty. Uh, it could be Pompeo. I don't know. Yeah, Pompeo. Pompeo is the is the creep. Yeah. So uh, as long as those guys are calling the shots now, I, I can't see how we can believe that Trump is getting uh, his way at all. I But I see Trump not agreeing with him all the time. They do say that they want to do some things. I know Bolton does. And Trump says, well, you know, I'll take that under advisement. And then he doesn't do it. Okay, we'll see how it pans out. Um, I'm the pessimist here. You're the optimist between I, I uh, the two Donald of us. Trump. I, I, huh? I believe in Donald Trump. I've been close. You still do. Yeah, okay. To him. I've seen him face to face. Oh, could, really? You met him? Well, I don't know if he met me, but I was, <laughs> I was two feet away. So. <laughs> okay. But oh, yeah. I, I've, I've seen Eric Trump. I've seen Rince Priebus, who I didn't really like. Uh, no. Never got to see Steve Bannon, but I got close to Steve Bannon's secretary. Bannon, look, Bannon and Flynn were so early squeezed out. Why? Because they were actually a threat to the establishment. Sure, because they wanted to come down. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 we know Flynn had a previous history because he used to be a part of the Intel. Um, sure did, and he was part of the Obama administration. He was canned because he wouldn't go along with what they wanted to do. Exactly. So, so th- w- when we see that those guys are getting out and they are being replaced by neocons, that's when you you know Uh-oh. you can believe in Trump, but it doesn't mean that he has the power. True. So, so I'm a pessimist. The U.S. attorneys are are good. The federal judges he's putting in place are good. It he's doing what he can do where he can do it. If the Republicans in the Senate would back his appointments and let his administration come up to strength, right now there are about 400 people, 500 people short of having a full administration, and he's almost three years into his term. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. This should have been done 24 months ago. Mm. You know, in this country, we've seen 
pretty much the destruction of the Republican Party. That happened about a year and a half ago. Um, well over half the old Republican Guard is retiring or they're gone. Uh, by this election, most of them will be gone. So it's now it's a new it's a new party. I don't even know you wouldn't. Yeah, but it was so promising under Ron Paul. Sure. I mean, yeah. imagine if he. But you know, they cheated him just like Bernie, right? That was libertarian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they cheated him just like uh, Bernie. But now we're, we're actually witnessing the destruction of the Democrat Party, and that's going to be something to watch. That's going to be so entertaining because the Democrats are not like. The Republicans, they'll go every man for himself, you know, to try to make all the money that they can make. Mm. But Democrats are not that way. They they move in lockstep. They move as a group like a like a school of fish. When they <laughs> fail, the whole thing's going to fail. I wonder what will come up in his stead. But well, uh, we've, we've seen new parties. You know, that's often how new parties manage to come onto this uh, scene when all collapsed. Yeah, I'd like to see a libertarian or even a constitutional party. We've got uh, what's called the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is very active in the Republican Party. But there's also a Freedom Caucus forming in the Democrat ranks, not in Congress, but in outside of Congress and some of the states. Mm. And uh, we're, so we're seeing that come to light. So I think once these old guard Democrats are taken out of the way – these younger millennials that are that are more progressive, and I mean progressive in the sense of getting government out of the way, yeah, yeah. letting because right now we have this enormous agency government. It's soaking trillions of dollars out of our economy, and we need to get rid of it. It needs to be gone. Mm. That's why the convention of states is so so important. No. The election starts in 28 days. Then, oh, my God. And in 28 days, it's going to be full on, full on. Already, we need- just had an election, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the uh, the midterm elections. The oh, right. This actually starts in 28 days. Okay, that will be interesting. Yeah. Well, let's see how it pans out. Well, we'll stay. We'll keep watching. And uh, so will you. I guess we, we should wrap it up then. Uh, we've been going for a couple of hours, so uh, we've cr- crammed a lot of info into this. Anything you want to add at the end here? Uh, no, I mean, th- I'll be speaking at uh, Contact in the Desert uh, the 30th or the 31st through the 2nd of June. So if you're anywhere on the West Coast and you can make it out there to Indian Wells, go to contactinthedesert.com and come and see me. And also, the stuff that we've been talking about tonight, it's all through the birth trilogy and eventually charm of favor. We're making it into film. The scripts wow. are being written. We're we're sharing them with TV executives in two weeks. And we hope to make the things that we have been talking about tonight available to the world in film. Wow, that's a feat. Uh, first off, I thought uh, Hollywood was controlled by the democratic establishment elite. <laughs> so- well, it is, it is, but TV has splintered. TV, Hollywood lost control of it. So it, it went to North Carolina, then it went to Georgia. There's filming going on in oh. 10 different states right now for uh, for Netflix, for Hulu, for Amazon, for Apple right, TV. Right. There's so many outlets right now, and they can't control them all because the viewers want it. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good business model. What 
Netflix and HBO and stuff is doing. It's democratizing. It's putting it back. Instead of going through the huge corporations, it's basically you pay, you get, which is how it should have been all all along. And there are a lot of fan-based studios now. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and, and fan-sponsored uh, projects. Like yes. take uh, last time you were on, we were discussing the – Hitler on the Moon and Hitler inside of the Earth movies. Um, uh, Iron Sky, I believe it's called. H&M and other fan. Yeah, and they are they are basically just financed by fans. That's right. <laughs> so it's possible. It's possible. It's new times. It's exciting times. Nothing keeps the people f- freer than a free press and free education. Yeah, we should have touched that maybe next time because the press I think it's it's a huge part of the problem is the press. Sure. But fortunately fortunately the internet is more or less cementing that. On the other hand, the corporations are trying to take over internet and control it precisely because you know you, you would have Clinton as president today if it wasn't for the internet. And and that's exactly what's going on in countries like Venezuela. You have China that's moving in and they're putting their BIM in place, which is a selective internet. As soon as any anti-government movement happens, they shut the internet off. Wow. China has their own internet? China has their own control over the internet and Google is the one that created the engine for them to do it. Right. Yeah, I've heard that in order for Facebook to be accepted in China, I think it was Facebook or was it Google, they had to yeah. comply with the censoring. Uh, right. And it's generally happening here. If you go to Google and you put in, just put in Donald Trump into Google, you won't find very many positive things at all. It's almost all negative. If you put in words like... Yeah, but that's, that's the general way that Google controls, the algorithm controls what's coming on top. But sure. in China, they're directly censoring websites. Yes. But uh, I've heard, uh, isn't there isn't there tools to get around that stuff? There are. VPN but, or you know, whatever. We have those tools and we have smart people in the United States, of course. But mm. if you influence... What people see when they put in search terms, uh, it's already been documented. They control five, maybe six million votes in the 2016 election. Mm. I'm sorry, the 2018 election. Mm. That's a lot of votes. That's that's enough to switch uh, control of Congress. Mm. Yeah. Well, they they use every mean they can, but uh, at least it's more work for them doing it through internet than you know Operation Mockingbird kind of thing in the old stream press, especially with so, great international radio programs like yours. Yeah, and yours, by the way. Tell us uh, about your radio show. Sure, X Squared Radio is live and free every Sunday night between eight and eleven p.m. Eastern time. It's a, it's a call-in program, so while we're live for three hours, you can call in and talk about anything. We do talk about science and global government and economics and, you know, whatever is interesting in the press. Spirituality. Yes. And, uh, it, it, like I said, it's free and it's uh, live and it's at xsquaredradio.com. Do you save old shows as podcasts? Yes. We save the podcast on tfrlive.com. And we also do a YouTube live. So since January, we've not only been on audio, but we've been on video. So you can see uh, what we're talking about and you can see me while, uh, while the program's on. Is this put out on your Brooks Agnew YouTube channel? Yes. 
Okay. I'm, uh, I think we subscribe to that, so I'll take a look. But that's great, Brooks. Uh, any new books in the pipeline, by the way? Right now I'm working on the, the scripts, the screenplays. It's three seasons, so there's 42 scripts. Each script is between oh, 35 and 41 pages long, depends on the amount of dialogue and action. No. That's about 2,000 pages of writing, and I am heavy <laughs> into it right now. We're almost <laughs> through season one. Yeah, going to keep you busy for a while. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for enlightening us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. And next time you want me to come on, no problem. I'll be on. Cool. Okay, Brooks. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. You too. And there you have it. Now let me say, Seth Rich was mentioned in this show. And I think in retrospective we gave uh, too little attention to that explosive story you know it's still an open murder investigation although not much investigation is being done but there are things i think would be relevant to share with you there because the story has got too little attention in general and uh, but before i do that let me remind you that if you're not a Trump supporter, do not be distracted by the fact that at the time of the recording, at least, our guest had faith in him. Um, when I originally read his first book, he was a Paul supporter, but like everyone else, he has, he's evolving with the times. And at this point, he he believed in Trump. And I don't blame him. Look, you you know me. If you've been following my shows, I'm not big on Trump. Although, in retrospective, this is this post-commentary is recorded in 22, it's obvious that he would have been the lesser of two evils. <laughs> you see, all the things they were trying to scare people uh, from voting Trump about has come to fruition under Biden. Uh, for example, uh, not that I'm blaming Biden, I mean, he's just a demented uh, figurehead, but these forces, the, these... Uh, Corporatists, military industry, WEF, globalist oligarchs, wars are us has a field day. And uh, currently we, it looks as if they are actually provoking a nuclear war. All these things they threatened that would happen under Trump, which didn't happen under Trump. So, um, and we see Trump has received the boogeyman treatment from day one. You know, the exact same thing they said about Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Slobodan Milosevic. They demonized um, Assad um, and uh, what's the guy in, in Venezuela, whatever his name is, I forgot. There's always this boogeyman narrative put out by the neocons and the neolibs. And I mean, look at the people who... who it's all the same people who has been wrong about everything, every time, and who always are trigger-happy and want to go to war. It's the exact same people. And the mainstream press, of course, more than ever now, are the stenographs, are PR agents, are propagandists. There's no real press left in the mainstream. But still, people are drinking the Kool-Aid. People in general, probably not you who listen to this, <laughs> but this has been a transition and people in general are not picking up on that. So they're still being influenced by the mainstream media on these very serious geopolitical issues. 
and uh, the same people who probably was against the the wars in the past are now buying up wholesale the current wars and it's only retrospective you know when some kind of adjustment of the lies are allowed to happen that some people if they even catch the revisions of the lies then uh, oh yeah but i didn't know any better well you should know any better by now that it's been happening dozens of times since the 90s and uh, yeah watch the same people in retrospect to say oh i was uh, those who said i was against the iraq war Many of them were shouting the loudest. And the exact same thing is happening today. But I'm I'm talking myself away from the point. So you don't have to agree about my guest's position on Trump because that's inferior. Whatever sentiments we have politically at any given time should be uh, distinguished from the message, from the facts, from the issues we are discussing. It's two different matters. And if you can't even listen to criticism being brought by people who don't share your political views, I remind you that even a fanatic like Hitler did that. You, did you know that he was very well read on Marx and Lenin? In fact, he said once one of his gauntleters asked him about that critically, he replied, those who are afraid to read their opponents' writings are just insecure about their own position. I, I think that's very right. You would want to, if you, if you know, if you're comfortable with your own values and views, you need to understand what's going on in the world and then you need to understand as many perspectives as possible. All that will bring about uh, a, a larger paradigm and also a larger ability to understand and process information and not be so confused and scared about what's going on around you in the world, which most people are. Obviously, most people just need a security. There needs to be parents out there that tells us, this is how it is, black and white, take it from the authority, now go to sleep. That's most people's instinctive need. And I, I don't blame them because in today's society, we're all bogged down. People are distracted. People are tired. They just want roof over their head, food in their belly, and some semblance of a life for their family. Now, that's a luxury that you, you may or may not get, but uh, some of us knows that the lunatics have taken over the asylum and we need to be the adults in the room we need to see all perspectives and understand better what's going on and that's why i often have on guests which i may not agree with about everything but for whatever i have them on for i'm all heirs because that's uh, something they've delved into is that something they are expert on and which I may be able to learn from. And uh, I'm very comfortable in my own values and my own ideals and my own views about things. So understanding what's going on, accepting uh, new facts that uh, I haven't taken into account before uh, doesn't throw me off <laughs> my baseline. In fact, it just expands it. And one of these things is, is Seth Rich because I must admit that I originally dismissed that thing because I didn't look deeply enough into it. Now, I, I, I knew it was something fishy, and I did for a long time suspect he was the uh, leak for WikiLeaks. And then came Russia Gates, and then I knew something is wrong, because 
again, those people who do not look into things, who do not do their own research, who do not uh, check out independent, serious investigators, but rely on the headlines, the corporate news, they believe to this day that there was something in Russiagate. They haven't registered that it's been de- officially debunked. Even the mainstream has run away from that. Uh, I mean, when Mueller didn't find anything, they should have taken the cue. Of course, Russia wasn't behind the hack of the DNC. Of course, there was no collusion between Trump and Russia. In fact, under the Trump administration, they did very many things that was bad for Russia. And... Uh, I don't even think Trump would be sophisticated enough to be in on such a plot if even the uh, Russian administration would be stupid enough to to try that. No, it's been a huge distraction and uh, this is why Seth Rich was such a threat for that part of the deep state because he blew open the case and in fact, um, just like the Hunter Biden laptop and all the other scandals regarding Hunter Biden, some of which we touched in the show today, because it didn't start with a laptop, of course, this corruption story. In fact, it's pretty ominous that we discussed Ukraine. Uh, this was obviously before Russia was provoked or someone said lured into attacking them. Uh, was It's an old story. It was relevant back then. Uh, it goes back to 2014. In fact, it goes even further back, but like everything in history is connected to everything. But let me not get tra- uh, off-tracked by that. Let's go back to Seth Rich. So I um, was back and forth about him, but there was this enormous debunking attempt without any substance, of course. So here's some interesting facts about the case, which you may or may not have heard about, but which you need to, because this smells Epstein, it smells JFK, pandemic, Russiagate, 9-11, it smells all these great lies that we are supposed to just swallow without put some effort into it. We're supposed to actually understand that we're being fed coal, pretending to be diamonds, so they don't even care. So listen to this, as I think this may clarify a little Um what you probably have suspected all along regarding the Seth Rich case. So on July 10, 2016, Seth Rich was a 27-year-old man walking home to his place on Capitol Hill after meeting friends in a nearby bar when he was shot in the back around 2.30 a.m. Fortunately, he was still alive and was taken to a nearby hospital. See, already this people don't know. that Many just assume he was dead uh, at the scene. But no, he was fully conscious and talking lucidly when he entered the hospital. A surgical resident said his wounds were not considered fatal. He said no one but the attending physician was allowed in Seth's room post-op. The attending physician examined his wounds, stabilized him and determined that he would survive as the wounds were not life-threatening, but would require surgery, which he would perform in a few hours. Shortly in the early hours of the morning, Donna Brazil and the D.C. police chief is reported to have visited the hospital. Another unknown doctor-slash-surgeon was called in to take over his case. Then Seth Rich was taken to another floor and died a few hours later. Now, these are interesting elements of the story that is is less unknown. But did you know that uh, shortly after the affair, an anonymous emergency room surgeon made a post to Bordnet regarding the circumstances of Seth Rich's death? And the means of information dissemination are similar to another 
intriguing anonymous post made it to Reddit by an alleged FBI agent. And I'll read to you the post of the ER doctor. He was one of those on duty in the hospital ICU where Sethrich was and posted the following, and I'm quoting an excerpt here. In the meantime, Seth Rich was transferred to the ICU and transfused with two units of blood when his post-surgery crit came back 20%. He was stable and not on any pressors, and it seemed pretty routine. About eight hours after he arrived, we were swarmed by law enforcement officers, and pretty much everyone except the attending physician and a few nurses were kicked out of the ICU, disallowing visiting hours, not something we do routinely. It was weird as hell. At turnover, that means change of shift, that morning we were instructed not to check up on the VIP that came in last night. That's exactly what the attending physician said and no one except for me and another resident had any idea who he was talking about. No one here was allowed to see Seth except for the attending physician when he died. No code was called. That never happens, let alone for a 27-year-old. I checked up on patients literally next door, but was physically blocked from checking in on him. I've never seen anything like it before, and while I can't say 100% that he was allowed to die, I don't understand why he was treated like that. Take it how you may, I'm just one low-level doc. Something's fishy though, that's for sure. Uh, End quote. Now, here's a few other interesting um, pieces of um, information regarding this case. There were newly installed video cameras throughout the neighborhood Rich was attacked in, but they refused to release the footage. (laughs) Sounds familiar? This is in a country with non-stop crime shows airing 24-7, showing video footage of crimes and attacks. But this footage of an alleged robbery is not allowed to be viewed. And what kind of robbery attempt does not steal his wallet, watch and mobile? If the FBI and Capitol Police were so sure it was just a butch robbery, why did the FBI take the laptop at all? FBI, of course, has claimed not to have any information from Seth's laptop, then denied even having the laptop, then pivoting to admitting having it. But now, and this is just in, demanding 66 years before releasing these non-existing files to the public. A rational reason for treating the Seth Rich info, like the JFK files and the Pfizer COVID files, demanding a lifetime before declassifying the material, is that releasing the files would reveal that the information WikiLeaks released indeed was from Seth's computer. And by the way, where Assange was speaking suspiciously about Seth Rich, I don't think that was the interview that Brooks mentioned, the one with Hannity. I think it was in a Dutch television program. But uh, you can just Google Assange on Rich and you will uh, find his very suspicious. He, in fact, I think he blurped out without intention, uh, like a slip of the tongue. But if indeed Rich is the leaker, that would also explain why they went into overdrive, making up stories about Seth being a low-level employee, when he literally had access to the, that information that got leaked. And a leak it was as the unfounded claims about hack, I mean, they never try, even tried to substantiate anything, it's just a claim, has been disproven once and for all by William Binney, former technical director of NSA and now co-head of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. 
The latter did a detailed analytics and forensics on the so-called server hack that showed beyond any reasonable doubt that it was a local download. And if Seth wasn't the whistleblower, why would WikiLeaks offer 20,000 for info on Rich's death? We even have a confession from a former British diplomat whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, look it up, who went public and admitted to meet Rich on behalf of Julian Assange and carried the information back to WikiLeaks. <laughs> if that's not a smoking gun, what is? And of course, then there's the usual miraculous coincidences that always happens in cases like this, like in JFK, Epstein, 9-11, etc. For example, did you know that the Washington DC district attorney is the brother of none other than Debbie Wasserman Schultz, namely Stephen Wasserman? And of course, yeah, we have the censorship spree as another indicator. Like there was tons of critical videos about the circumstances surrounding Seth's death a few years ago, who's almost all deleted from the interwebs by now. In conclusion, his name was Seth Rich, but everyone knew him as Russia. Thanks for listening. Remember, you now can find us at Rumble, ODC, and BitChute. If you want early access to all our files, join our website and throw us a coin, especially a crypto coin. I've been your host, Al, reminding you that truth is treason in the empire of lies. Be seeing you. Number one.